Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Pitch to Post season review. How do you even begin to put together an intro for a Premier League season like that? Not a single club has had it easy. Even the eventual runaway champions, Manchester City, were down in eighth at Christmas. At that point, Liverpool were top and looking a good bet to make it consecutive Premier League titles before an incredible run of poor results. Mikel Arteta's Arsenal spent some time languishing in 15th. And speaking of teams with club legends turned managers... Frank Lampard and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer had contrasting fates after spells of pressure. Lampard replaced by Thomas Tuchel, whilst United stuck with Ole as both teams were rewarded with a top four finish. Arguably the most consistent team were Leicester, and yet somehow, somehow, for the second year in a row, they just miss out on a top four spot. Elsewhere, Spurs sacked Jose Mourinho in the week of a major final. There was plenty of early season handball controversy. Villa thrashed the reigning champions 7-2. Fans returned to Stadia. And I haven't even mentioned the European Super League. But let's be honest, it's best not to mention that anyway. I'm Jasper Taylor. Alongside me to review the season is SkySports.com senior football writer Gerard Brand, Sky Sports feature writer Nick Wright and Sky Sports news reporter Ben Ransom. GB, we've spent the majority of this season reviewing it week by week. It's been quite incredible, hasn't it? Yeah, sort of really up and down. I think early on in the season, did we have four or five potential title uh, challengers? Uh, it ended up just being the one, really, from February onwards. But a bizarre season. I'll be honest, not a season I'd want to relive again without the fans, but it kept us entertained when we really needed it. Nick, is this a good point to uh, for you to share your prediction early on in the season, if you remember it? I, I can't think of what prediction you're you're referring to, Jasper. <laughs> it was a particular Arsenal prediction that you made. Uh, yes, yes, top four finish for Arsenal. Well, you know what? I actually, I'm, it's quite amazing that um, Arsenal have somehow finished within six points of the Champions League places. So I guess I wasn't that wildly off with that um but yeah yeah i mean you could look at it that way but an an eighth place finish uh, in the end just very quickly because we're going to move on to them in more detail nick what was the one thing that you think went wrong hard to pinpoint one thing um a lot went wrong jasper almost everything went wrong at different points Um, (laughs) i'll tell you what save it save save it for uh for when we dive into it in more detail Uh, let's go to the opposite and and things going very right ben ransom and Manchester City, another incredible season. Potentially, with this Champions League final looming, the best season in their history? For sure. If they win the Champions League final, absolutely. I mean, look, you know I've gone on record many times saying that I think the 2017-18 team was slightly better in terms of its excitement, in terms of how ruthless it was, in terms of how many goals they scored. But you cannot argue with what this group has done. That winning run between kind of late December and March, I think, what, 22 games in all competitions. It was just incredible. And that's when they won the title. Guardiola spoke about it after the game. He got very emotional, didn't he, Um, after that match? Because I think he realises the journey they've all been on. At the start of the season, I love that montage on the the Sky Sports football output um, about the pundits kind of saying how City didn't look like the right team, didn't have the belief. I think the, the phrase from maybe Gary Neville, was it? They've squeezed all the juice out of this particular orange. And then all of a sudden... 
there was plenty more juice to give. All the players had that meeting. They came together as a group, bottom half in November, eighth as they went towards Christmas. And then in the end, they were champions by a straw, weren't they? Yeah, it was an exceptional turnaround. Uh, the first team in the history of the Premier League to be as low as eighth on Christmas Day and then go on to win the title. And we did see a very emotional Pep Guardiola, Ben. It seemed to be mainly because of the departure of Sergio Aguero and that showed just what an impact this man has had on the club. Absolutely. Look, Aguero is an absolute legend. And again, I've gone on record many times saying I think he's their greatest ever player. I know the City fans will all say David Silva and absolutely I bow to their superior knowledge. But in terms of what Aguero brought to the team and in terms of the number of goals he scored and how how brilliant some of those strikes were. Remember, he used to smash it in from all angles. His finishing was so lethal in big games, in big moments. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he gave them their greatest ever single moment in the Premier League with that goal. Possibly the greatest ever single Premier League moment. To win a title in the 94th minute of a match was just amazing. That iconic commentary which we got to hear again over the weekend the fact he came back with that fairy tale end and scored a couple of goals I mean he has been absolutely remarkable and the thing about Aguero is off the pitch he's every bit the great guy as well Pep always talks about how humble he is how great he is around the group he's not he doesn't carry the ego of someone who would deserve to carry it given the, the performances he's put in given the number of goals he scored goal scorers tend to have that selfish ruthless, look at me, I'm the star type attitude. That couldn't be further from Sergio Aguero and yet he still manages to deliver. Great in the group, doesn't moan when he's not playing, reinvented his game in many ways to fit into that Guardiola style, to show he had a future and I think Pep really appreciated having him around the group over the last few years, even though he's not played as much as he would have liked for injury and I think that we saw that, the emotion in Guardiola's face knowing that he'd be losing that person, a really special person from his dressing room. And I think also there was a bit of an emotion came out because of the difficulty of the last year. I mean, you know, all everyone to some degree has suffered, some a lot more than others. Guardiola losing his mum was huge, obviously, last year. The group at Man City have had similar tragedies on and off the pitch in terms of personnel. It's... Um, yeah, it's been a really tough season for everyone. And I think the fact that City have been able to somehow show the resolve and come together as a group to deliver something so special and then get to celebrate it in front of their fans was pretty remarkable and pretty magical. Yeah, phenomenal season. And uh, yeah, it's goodbye to a Premier League great in Sergio Aguero as well. Surely a future Hall of Famer, uh, no doubt. And uh, speaking of future Hall of Famers, the teaser this week is going to be around another top striker. It's Harry Kane. He finished the season as both the top goalscorer and top assister in the Premier League uh, this season. That's only the second time a player has finished with both the outright most goals and assists in the competition. Can you tell me the only other player to manage that feat? An answer coming up, of course, at the end of the show. Right, the first topic we're going to discuss today are the North London clubs, Arsenal and Tottenham. It's the first time that both of them have finished outside of the top six since 1995. Okay, Nick, this is your moment. Over to you. Talk about what happened at Arsenal this season. Well, a lot happened and not much of it was great, was it? But um, no, it was obviously 
a big incentive for Arsenal, not so much to get in the Europa Conference League, but to finish above Spurs yesterday. So a bit of a disappointing end in that respect. But I don't think there'll be much bragging going on from from either set of fans, will there? I mean, I think they'll both be pretty glad to see the back of this season. I mean, yeah, from Arsenal's perspective, of course, it's been hugely disappointing in all kinds of ways, really, both on and off the pitch. And we saw more protests against the, the club's owners from fans outside the Emirates yesterday. Protests in the stadium as well, actually, holding up posters and the like. Um, so... No, I think I think a lot of fans will probably be relieved that it's over and relieved to skip the Thursday nights of the Conference League, um, and Arteta might feel that too, although although he wouldn't in, admit it afterwards. Um, but look, no, no one no one at the club will be under any illusions about the need to improve. Um, that's that's obvious. But there there are some positives to reflect on too. I think. I mean, it kind of sums up this bizarre season that Arsenal are, are finishing it as the kind of form team in the Premier League and. And only six points away from the Champions League, as I said before, which is is kind of crazy to think of when you when you think of all the well, they basically seem to be on the brink of crisis for almost the entire season, haven't they? And yet they they're not too far off where they kind of want to be. And there's also the table since Christmas, which has been circulating a lot in the last week or so, which shows Arsenal third, I think now behind Man City and Man United in that period. So no, I, I don't think we should let those those things obscure some of the issues in the team because you know even since Christmas there have been some pretty desperate performances. You know, you think of the way they crashed out of the Europa League; it was really abject. But there are signs of encouragement there. The defensive record is very good, which I think reflects well on Arteta because you can't be defensively strong without good coaching. And and you know they're behind only Chelsea and Man City for goals conceded in the. In the Premier League, the young players are very exciting as well. Nicolas Pepe yesterday showing again that maybe next season could be his kind of, you know, his big season, and he he could yet become the player that Arsenal hoped they would that he would be when they signed him. So there are some interesting things there and some some materials for Arteta to work with. I think a lot depends on what happens this summer because obviously there are players they need to move on, but more important than that, they need to get the right players in because the, the recruitment under Arteta has been a little bit patchy. So it's a big summer for them. Um, they'll be hoping to build on some of these positives. But um, overall, they'll just be glad to, to see the back of this season, definitely. Mm. GB, Gabriel losing his tooth during David Luiz's farewell. Did that ironically sort of sum up a rather toothless campaign for Arsenal and then I saw all of the players sort of wandering around searching for something on the pitch and not quite managing to find it it was sort of a an extended metaphor for this season yeah it was a little bit I think there are gen- as, as Nick says there are genuine things to be encouraged about if you're an Arsenal fan but but of all those clubs in the top half I think Arsenal the one where I just can't tell what's going to happen next I think this season's just come in waves for them once they seem to have things sorted once they seem to have shown great character it all falls apart with some really average results and and average performances I think one thing I'd say is that Arteta has shown a massive amount of ruthlessness so far in his time at a club and, and one thing I think he he has on his side still is his mystery I mean I think that's affording him and will afford him a lot of time I do believe many still have this let's wait and see what Arteta's really about judgment on him and you know, Arsenal feel like they should be a top four team, but but you know, join the club. There are about six or seven of those clubs now. It, it didn't used to be that way. I think earlier part in the century, but Man City becoming huge and, and Spurs becoming big as well. It's made that top four really crowded. So seven teams genuinely feel like they should be in it. So, so you're always going to get three very disappointed teams, and it's 
it tends to be Arsenal at the moment and uh, alongside their, their North London rivals. Well, talking of their North London rivals, it doesn't quite finish the drama right here for Spurs, does it? Because this summer is going to be very interesting, GB, particularly with uh, a certain Harry Kane. Yeah, they've got a massive summer, which I think we'll look back on and as being the time it either started to go very wrong for Spurs or or very right for them. Um, and I think it's weighted really towards what might go wrong for them. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I'd I'd rather watch Series Two of this Spurs doc than Series One. It it really it wouldn't even be a documentary, would it? It's, it's so proper this season at, at Spurs. I think of all the clubs of all the clubs we're going to talk about today. Spurs are the one side I fear for the most for two big reasons. And number one, I don't think there's an out-and-out good fit for them in terms of who takes over. Do they go for a long-term project like a Pochettino or do they go for a proven winner like like Mourinho? They've tried both of those things and I'm not sure what their next move will be. I think I think the long-term project make, probably makes more sense for the club as a whole, but that probably won't keep Harry Kane at the club. So... I think they're just in a, in a, a bit of a bad situation at the moment. The fans are really unhappy. I was there midweek against Villa and it was really toxic at times. And I don't necessarily think need, Spurs need to overhaul their squad. I think there is a good squad there in many places, but they need a manager who's going who's gonna to lift the mood very, very fast. But yeah, a massive amount of it depends on where Kane goes and that in turn depends who the manager is. Ben, what do you think is more important this summer for Tottenham? Getting the right manager in or getting the right person in to replace Harry Kane if he goes? That's a really tough one. Um, I think probably the manager, isn't it? Because I think that we've seen when the likes of Guardiola, Klopp, um, perhaps Tuchel, are the writing still on the wall with him a little bit, when these great managers have come in and had the time, they have been able to have big influences on football clubs over a prolonged period. I mean, certainly in the case of Guardiola and Klopp, who Tottenham would like to think they sit alongside those two clubs in terms of where they should be in the Premier League, challenging for the big trophies, getting in the Champions League every year. Those managers have now been there for a period. They've been able to build a group, a squad, a playing style that's got an identity. They've had the time to implement that and they've delivered success. So you can do that whether you need to rebuild personnel or not. And I think that... um, I think that's the most important decision. I think the challenge for anyone going in there is exactly what Gerald's been talking about in terms of getting that group, because it's not a bad squad. But there is now, I'm afraid to say, that tag of being a bit spursy, that tag of not winning the trophies, of failing in the big moments. That is going to eat into the psychology of all those players in that group, in that squad. So, yeah, that's uh, that's a real challenge. And it's not one that's easily fixed, I don't think, by maybe one or two players even coming in. Mm, right, I want answers from all three of you. Nick, first, where will Kane be next season? Another Premier League club, a European club, or still at Tottenham? I think another Premier League club. I think he'll probably end up at Man City, if I had to If I had to say now. Although it won't be easy for them to get it, get it done. But yeah, I see him at Man City. Ben, do you see anything stopping that move, just from a Manchester City perspective? And is that indeed where you might expect... Kane to end up? Yeah, the only thing that I think could stand in the way will be the price because you've got the rock and the hard place, haven't you? You've got the Man City who don't pay more than £64 million for anyone and then you've got Daniel Levy who doesn't accept small change for any of his big assets. So hardball meets hardball. Uh, someone's going to have to, you know, both will want to come out looking favourably. I mean, look, they managed it with Kyle Walker. 
they, I mean, there were different fees that we got from both clubs. Admittedly, both claimed it as a massive success in terms of that signing, in terms of either the money or the fact that City got their man. So it can be done. There's no animosity behind, behind the scenes in that respect between the clubs. Um, I think that Kane to City would make the most sense. I think they've definitely got the money to spend. Guardiola's been... He's been volunteering this narrative for the last few weeks and months about the fact that they have had to spend money to be where they are. And that, to me, was always prepping us for this big summer of spending. It was always that marquee replacement for Sergio Aguero. So I think that, yeah, I think that City would be in pole position. I think that it might take, as Gary Neville suggested at the weekend, it might take some sort of player swap. You know, could that be the thing that just tempts both and makes both happy? Kane signs for 130 million, say, but then they, I don't know, get... I'll throw one in Nathan Ake, for example, for forty million, fifty million. I don't know. Uh, so the the net well, spend. Well, what about Gabriel Jesus getting a striker back? Yeah, yeah, or Jesus maybe. I mean, I don't think City wants to lose Jesus, but I suppose if that's what it takes to get Harry Kane, then then maybe. I mean, maybe there's plenty of options in the squad. I'm sure that Tottenham would be interested that would improve their squad. So a deal can be done. The price is going to be the only potential sticking point, and whether or not Daniel Levy digs his heels in. Yeah, GB. Where do you expect to see Kane come to the start of next season? You're probably not going to expect me to say this, having just um, slandered Don't say Aston Villa. No, um, (laughs) we wish. Uh, Ollie Watkins is absolutely fine where we are, actually. Um, um, I I actually, I think he'll leave Spurs eventually in the next 18 months, but I think he'll start the season at Spurs. I think the biggest block to Kane leaving is Haaland and Mbappé potentially being available. Uh, in the next 12 months, I, I can't think of many teams who will pay 140 million for a 28-year-old if they can spend the same or, or a bit more on a 21 or 22-year-old and guarantee a decade of goals. I think it's going to be a really difficult deal. I think he'll eventually leave, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's if it's next summer. And I still think the future doesn't look fantastic for Spurs. But I, if I was to put my house on it, it would be it would be staying at Spurs actually. Okay, let's talk about Chelsea then, uh, because a really interesting season at Stamford Bridge. Bit of a cliche, but definitely a season of two halves with uh, first Frank Lampard and then Thomas Tuchel coming in. Uh, Chelsea were 11th when Tuchel took over in late January, GB. They finish fourth and in the Champions League final and uh, an FA Cup final as well, which of course they lost to Leicester. But overall, you would say... He's had quite the impact, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. He's 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 been quite entertaining. Um, I think he's taken to the Premier League quite well. And I think of all the clubs going into the summer window, I think this says a lot about about where Chelsea are. Probably bar Man City, I think Chelsea have the least work to do. If you, I think if you've got a good defence, you've you've got a great chance of winning of winning titles. And and Tuchel has, has proven over twenty odd games how watertight he can make his his side. I think. But I think if a good defence is the first hallmark of, of, of Tuchel's Chelsea, missing chances is most definitely the next biggest hallmark. Again, on Sunday at Villa, 23 shots on goal. They just missed so many chances. And, and what's amazing is that since Tuchel arrived, Chelsea have created more chances than any Premier League side. But only three sides have a lower conversion rate than Chelsea. It's I think people say putting the ball in the net is the hardest thing to do. I don't disagree with that, but but I think while Chelsea are creating these opportunities, I've got a lot of hope for them next season, and I don't think Tuchel needs to rock the boat too much in the summer. I think he already has a very good squad, and the likes of 
Ziyech and Havertz and in particular Werner now have a Premier League a year of Premier League football under their belt and I'll make a prediction next season I think Werner's taken a lot of stick this year but I think he'll score at least 15 Premier League goals next season he plays on the edge which means yes he's offside a lot but but so is Jamie Vardy for the last five years and I think he'll keep getting chances and once his confidence goes up I think he'll score a lot of goals so the future's uh, is, bright is for Chelsea is 15 a lot? Is 15 a lot for a Chelsea well, striker? He scored six this year, so I think it's a bit of an improvement considering he's been he's been yeah, he's been criticised quite heavily. I think Werner, but I think he's a I do think there's a top top striker in there in him. Ben, what do you think? Well, I I mean that's my biggest worry for Chelsea is that I don't think 15 is enough. Um, and also, it's the same challenge that Lampard had. Tuchel seemed to have it right when he took over, and he was helped a bit by certain players being injured, and that he only could only pick. In certain players in certain positions but you can't you know it's very difficult to find a way of playing with all of those attacking assets that are all almost like number 10s inverted forwards um, those players it's very difficult to find a, a system that gets the best out of them all you know Mount, Havertz, Pulisic and Werner um, people like hudson Adoy now ended up playing at wing back just to get a game I think it's it's a very difficult thing. Lampard struggled with it. Tuchel looked like I say, as I say, had a bit of a handle on it. But I think that's his biggest challenge. They've spent a lot of money on those attacking players, and they have not yielded attacking returns. The fact that Jorginho was the top scorer, despite that ludicrous penalty he takes, um, says it already. You know, Tammy Abraham was the sec- joint second top scorer with six, and he is so far out of favour with Tuchel. It's ridiculous. So that's a big, big worry, I think. And they spent massive last summer. If this was Man City, you'd all be asking me, oh, God, City, they've spent all this money, they're big failures, big flops, you know, big spending City, get it wrong. Well, Chelsea spent so much, and yet they look so far away from where they should be. And they look like they might have to spend again this summer just to get back towards City and probably a resurgent Liverpool and a relatively consistently improving Manchester United. And as Nick was saying, a probably improved Arsenal. It's a very difficult summer, I think, for Chelsea. Okay, that's two different ways of looking at it, Nick. Which side of the fence are you on at the moment with Chelsea? Do you think they're in a good position right now or do you think they could struggle if they don't invest? I think they're in a pretty good position because... You know, partly because of Tuchel, who is obviously an excellent manager and has definitely improved improved players individually and collectively, I think. And but also because it does seem as though Abramovich is still very happy to continue investing in the team. You know, as Ben says, they spent an enormous amount of money last summer. I think it was two two hundred and twenty six million in the end last summer, in the middle of a pandemic. You know, when other clubs were reining it in a bit. So that suggests that Abramovich is very happy to continue investing. And I think, I mean, I kind of feel like the team is. It, is set up reasonably well under Tuchel. It's just that issue of putting the putting the chances in in the net, and if they can recruit a, a top level striker, you know, I like Gerard. I, I like Werner, and he brings a lot to the team in his movement and his and the way he stretches defenses. I think he's a valuable player for them, definitely, and he will score more goals next season. But they do need someone else as well, especially with Olivier Giroud probably leaving, and it seems like Tammy Abraham's going to be leaving as well. So they, they definitely need someone else up there. I think they will get someone, whether it's Haaland, I don't know, whether they, they go for someone a little more, you know, with a little lower profile, I'm not sure. But um, if they can add, you know, some, some kind of cutting edge up front to everything that Tuchel's already changed there, then I really do think they will be a force. And I think, you know, let's, let's not forget they're in the Champions League final as well. They could... They could yet finish this season as, as European champions. So, no, I think they're definitely heading in the right direction. And I think um, I think 
I think it would only take kind of one or two signings this summer for them to be a real force. Okay, interesting stuff. Right, coming up later in the show, we run through the end of season awards. But after the break, it's time to talk Manchester United, Liverpool, Leicester and West Ham. But before the end of each part of this show, we're going to hear from each of our Sky Sports Premier League commentators on their memories of an historic season. I'm going to start with Rob Hawthorne. Hi, this is Rob Hawthorne. My Premier League match of the season would have to be Aston Villa's 7-2 win against Liverpool back in October. Liverpool had just been crowned champions. They still had Virgil van Dijk and Joe Gomez in their defence at the time. So it wasn't really until Jack really scored the sixth goal of the match that we realised they weren't going to come back and get something out of the match. An honourable mention too to West Ham for their comeback at Spurs, especially with that Manuel Lanzini goal, fantastic as it was, saving what looked an unlikely point when they were 3-0 down with about 10 minutes to go. My favourite moment of the season was Alisson's goal at West Brom. It's unusual enough for a goalkeeper to score a goal, but it was a great header and such a late stage of such an important match. After everything he'd been through, both professionally and personally, I think the outpouring of emotion following that goal was one of the defining images of the season. My overriding feeling of the season is somewhat mixed. On the plus side, there have been some real tales of the unexpected results. There have been some excellent bar-raising performances. David Moyes' job at West Ham has been outstanding. I've been less enamoured with VAR, which for me is turning football into more of a science and less of an art. And the only way that fans have been able to make their voices heard has been at a distance with the United opposition to the European Super League especially impressive. But it's good to have you back in the grounds now. We've missed you. Right, we've just been talking about a huge turnaround in a season for Chelsea at the midway stage. Well, what about Manchester United, Ben? In December, out of the Champions League, Solskjaer's future looked to be hanging by a thread. How did he turn it around? I think as he's done in previous seasons, when there is pressure on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, he seems to find a way of getting a run of results that takes that pressure off. And look, United are in a position now where I think if they win that Europa League final, they can look back on a pretty successful season. Because let's not forget what they're up against. I know Manchester United fans would assume and expect them to be challenging for the Premier League title. That's off the back of what Sir Alex Ferguson did through the 90s and early 2000s, right? But over the last five, six, seven years, it's been a real struggle. We all agree that. And yet Solskjaer has consistently just got them closer and closer to where they need to be. And we've just been talking about how good City were, how much money Chelsea have spent. You know, I know on previous podcasts we've spoken about Liverpool, their quality and what Jurgen Klopp's done there. And the fact that Solskjaer has finished second, I think, is excellent. The fact that, you know, last year or two years ago, he was third, 33 points behind the champions. Admittedly, in the 90s, the points were that, that year. But this year, he was only 12 points behind Man City. And I think that's pretty creditable. And I think that they have shown a consistency. Unbeaten away from home in the Premier League is something that's kind of gone under the radar a bit, but actually is pretty impressive. And... I think they, and I've said it before, I think they are a couple of players away from being genuine title contenders. I really do. I think they are moving in the right direction. And I think Solskjaer has to take a lot of credit and we have to start giving him a bit more respect, I think, for what he's doing. Yeah, you mentioned that incredible away record. United becoming just the fourth side to remain unbeaten away from home across an entire English top flight campaign. It was 12 wins and seven draws from their 19 games, which was incredible stuff. But ben mentioned there GB 
they're a couple of players away from a proper title challenge. Who do you think those players are or specifically what positions do you think they need to strengthen in? It's really simple for me. I think, you know, there's all this talk about forward and, and who might be available. They need a central defender. I, I think I think they're not in a massively dissimilar place to where they, they were last season when they started last season. They finished the season with lots of promise, seemingly, you know, set them out a, a challenge on the title, but they started this season really poorly. I think they need a better partner for Harry Maguire. I think I think Lindelof is is a decent enough top six central defender, but I'm not sure any other side in the top six would go out of their way to uh, to have him in their side. And, and and Man United can't be going for the top four every year. It's about winning the title. I think Eric, Eric Bailly is again he's, he's inconsistent and he's good but not world class. And I think I don't know if good is good enough for for United at the moment. We could go into the goalkeeping situation. I, I do think that's a headache for Solskjaer that he could do without. And and I, th- I think his hands are tied in a way there because he either goes with an unproven goalkeeper uh, in, in Dean Henderson or, or David De Gea, who simply isn't the player he, he was. So I think there's, that's a bit of a problem. But they've conceded 44 goals this season, 28 at home, the most since since the 60s. You, you don't win titles these days conceding over 35 goals in a season, let alone nearly 45 the last four Premier League champions, average goals conceded, 29. I mean, that says it all. I, I understand that signing defenders isn't the most glamorous subject in comparison to Haaland and Kane and Sancho and whoever, but if people can't see that this is, is Man United's biggest need next season, they won't challenge again. That They'll have a couple of weeks of it, maybe, like they had this season. But you know, since Fergie, United have entered too many seasons in a negative fashion and not buying what they need. And, and and if they can get a very good centre-half, I think they'll have definitely improved. Mm. I, I think that a lot of United fans will look at this season as relatively successful. They've certainly made progress. They were the closest club to their rivals in Manchester City. And if they manage to get a trophy as well, um, surely there'll be a lot of happy United fans. Uh, Nick, let's move on to Liverpool, though, because um, perhaps... One of the most interesting seasons of all the clubs in the Premier League uh, this season. Where do we even start? Uh, the fact that they have managed to get a top four spot, which looked so unlikely uh, a matter of weeks ago, and they've put together this phenomenal run of form to get over the line. Right now, do you think it will be positive around Liverpool, or do you think they'll reflect on what might be a slightly disappointing campaign. I think it will be considered a hugely positive campaign given the circumstances. You know, I honestly think that what Klopp has managed to do this season in these circumstances is as good an achievement as, as winning the title last year. I really do. I mean, he's made the point of asking recently what would happen to Man City, what would happen to Man United or Chelsea if they lost their, their best three centre-backs. And he's, he's right to highlight that. You know, would Man, would Man City have won the title if they hadn't had Ruben Diaz, John Stones and Emmerich Laporte this season? Would they have even finished in the top four? I mean... You, you can imagine that being a real problem for them and, and Liverpool have managed to overcome it. You know, I did an interview with Thiago Alcantara last week and he talked about how Liverpool basically had to kind of create a new team in the middle of the season. And, and it's true, really. Klopp has had to kind of stitch a side together on the fly, hasn't he? As well as the long-term injuries to Van Dijk, Gomez and Matip. They've also lost Fabinho at points. They've lost Henderson at other times. You know, two players who are filling in at centre-back. So there really has been no stability there at all. They're probably the most important part of the team. You know, if you want to win the title, you need solidity in the centre-back positions. We all know that. 
And you look at the centre-backs they're using there now and you have Nat Phillips, who was supposed to go on loan to the Championship early in the season and spent last year in Germany's second division. And Reese Williams, whose only previous senior experience came with Kidderminster Harriers in the sixth tier on loan. You know, now those players have obviously seized their chance, but it's Klopp who's made it all work. And I think it's been an example of masterful management, really, and really challenging circumstances you know the situation can so easily have spiraled I'm not saying Klopp didn't make any mistakes earlier in the season because of course there there were points when he could have done things better and he made some poor decisions but you know just when it looked like the situation was going to get a bit out of control and we've seen that so many times with big clubs it's so easy to kind of pull back from that isn't it but he's managed to do that and they've finished the season in third place and and they can go again next year knowing they're in the Champions League and everything is in place for them to to get back to the kind of level they were at last season. So I think, yeah, they'll look back on it and think, thank God it's over and thank God we, we managed to salvage something from it from when it looked completely improbable. Mm. Given those injuries, GB, who do you think's actually had a better campaign, Manchester United or Liverpool? There's five points between them. I think it's a good debate. This because if you look at some of the the hands Liverpool have been dealt with this season to finish third, five points behind, as you say, is, is quite something. Liverpool need a reset, and I think they'll they'll get it this summer with with the defence returning and the fans returning. But you know, despite having one of their worst seasons, losing that many games in a row to still finish in the top four is 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 amazing, really. However, I'd say in terms of encouragement for the future, I think Man United have had the better season. I think. Liverpool have a bit of work to do in the market, maybe not necessarily this summer, but in the next 18 months to two years. And they'll have a lot of squad management issues to deal with as well because the age of some of their players, they're similar to Man City a few years ago. You've got some players there getting to a certain age. Van Dijk will be 30, Salah will be 29, Mane will be 29, Firmino nearly 30, Henderson's going to be 31, Thiago's 30. I think you know this is this could be an issue for... Liverpool going forward so in terms of encouragement I'd say Man United yes Liverpool have had an amazing season but I think I'd probably rather be in 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 United's boat at the moment very very quickly because I want to move on and talk about Leicester and West Ham but from all three of you very quickly who's going to finish higher next season Manchester United or Liverpool Nick Liverpool GB Liverpool next season yeah Ben? United. There we go. Okay. Right, let's move on to Leicester then because uh, it's happened again. Can you believe it? For a second season in a row. And how about this for a fact? Despite spending more days in the top four than any other Premier League side this season, 242 days, Leicester finished fifth and missed out on that Champions League qualification I mean GB where do you even begin to start these these poor Leicester fans for two seasons in a row now we'll mention the FA Cup in a minute but just in terms of uh, that sort of promised land of the Champions League how much of a disappointment is it it's a massive disappointment and I really fear that by August September after the transfer window that FA Cup final win will be a distant memory and and it will begin to really dawn on them if it hasn't already that uh, they don't have Champions League football to look forward to having yet again been almost nailed on to get it I also fear what might happen to some of their top performers like Tillemans and Ndidi and they got some fantastic young defenders too I think they'll be fighting to keep these players and, and struggling to surround them with 
Champions League quality players while they're in the Europa League and and so like Spurs potentially a sliding doors moment for Leicester this 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 summer but there's no doubt in my mind they have a fantastic manager in, in Rodgers it's in good hands but he hasn't again for the second year he hasn't quite been able to squeeze that last percentage out of them and don't you know let's make no mistake they've overachieved in both in, in both seasons um, but, but massively disappointing and it just feels like feels like an opportunity missed that FA Cup win was one of the highlights of the season though Ben as we've sort of just alluded to there conflicting emotions for Leicester fans right now I would imagine probably still on a high from that brilliant Cup win but missed out uh, again on the Champions League what do you think it means for them next season do you think that perhaps the focus now that they've won the Premier League now that they've won the FA Cup is purely going to be get back in that Champions League it's tough, isn't it? It's really tough. We debated this last week. We spoke about what would mean more to the Leicester fans, the FA Cup or the Champions League. I mean, I, I said at the time, maybe it's the, I was misreading the mood. I said I thought the Champions League was perhaps slightly more important. But then you see the FA Cup when you see what it means to them. You see the fans in the stadium and you think, well, actually, you do have a major trophy. And there aren't many major trophies, are there, at the start of every campaign for you to go for? There's only three in England and one of to get the FA Cup is fantastic. That is a real success. So you're right. They've won the Premier League, they've won the FA Cup. But the worry for me is that it's happened again for the second season. The stat that was reeled around yesterday, they were for 93% of the last two seasons, they were in the top four. And yet they missed out both years on the final day. I mean, that is absolutely staggering. And Look, Rodgers is a great manager. Gerard's absolutely right. But, you know, so much of what he does is so good. But think back to that title uh, race with, you know, with Liverpool when he, they blew it right at the end. Think back to the last two seasons. Like, as much as we all respect Brendan Rodgers and believe he's a great manager, that will be nagging at him because he's a perfectionist as well. He wants to achieve. OK, Nick, what about West Ham as well? Because they finished sixth this season, 65 points. They actually only finished one win outside of those Champions League spots. Looking back at the defeat by Newcastle in April, perhaps the 3-2 defeat there, which if they just managed to win that game, we'd be talking about West Ham now in the Champions League. It's been an incredible season, hasn't it, for them? Yeah, absolutely brilliant from West Ham and from David Moyes, who should definitely be in the conversation for the Manager of the Year award, I think. I mean, it's been a remarkable turnaround when you consider how last season went and how people were kind of viewing West Ham at the start of this season, you know, even at the, at the right at the start of this campaign, they were, they were sort of written off as relegation fodder, weren't they, this year? But no, there's been a massive turnaround on the pitch and off the pitch as well, I'd say, because I think it's fair to say West Ham's recruitment has been pretty patchy under Golden Sullivan over the years. You know, that's being generous probably as well. There's been some really dodgy signings and in terms of their quality. But but since Moyes has come in, they've made some fantastic additions really, which have just fit perfectly into what he wants to do. You know, that, that should be pretty obvious, shouldn't it? You decide how you want to play and then you identify and bring in the players who fit into that. But the reality is a lot of clubs end up doing it back to front, don't they? They end up signing players and then making plans around those players. But that just leads to more problems and West Ham have avoided that by signing players who just fit them so well you know Thomas Suchek Vladimir Soufal Craig Dawson Jared Bowen of course Jesse Lingard they've just all proved to be really astute signings and West Ham have really benefited from that and and they deserve their sixth place finish I, I suppose the next challenge will be to add more depth to the squad in preparation for Europe you know the Europa League is a tough old slog 
Um, but right now they can just sit back and savour a, a special season. Okay, they didn't make it to the Champions League, but my word, to have got a sixth place finish and get Europa League qualification is just an outstanding achievement. Mm. GB, we had an interesting debate earlier this season <laughs> surrounding West Ham and David Moyes. Are they going to be happy? Yeah, they've gained 26 points from last season, which is quite incredible, really. Villa second in that regard with a 20-point gain. Moyes has done an incredible job and is is rightly up there as as manager of the year for me. Um, but I'm, in, I'm intrigued to see how West Ham as a club, how the owners, how David Moyes, how the players, how the fans deal with a massive rise in expectation that will come from this. They massively underachieved last season, massively overachieved this season. If they return to a level, which is maybe ninth or tenth, let's say, I uh, don't think their 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 owners uh, will be happy uh, having tasted a real top four challenge. But that's to come. Um, for now, massive credit to Moyes to get those sorts of performances out of those players is is phenomenal. Okay, after the break, it's our end of season awards, including team of the season, best player, and best moment. But before the break, here's Sky Sports commentator Bill Leslie with his memories from the Premier League campaign. Hi there, this is Bill Leslie. So what is my favourite Premier League game of the season? Had to actually really think about this one. Had uh, a sort of top three, if you like. Two were um, involving Manchester City when they were hammered at home 5-2 by Leicester. That made everyone sit up and take notice. And of course, they went out inside Ruben Diaz the next day, which was a, a game changer. Likewise, when Jose Mourinho's Spurs did a job on Man City, that made a few people think that Spurs were going to go on and uh, put a genuine title bid together under Jose Mourinho. We know how that turned out. But the game I'm actually going to pick as my favourite one of the season that I was at is Fulham's draw at home to Liverpool. That came just before Christmas. We had 2,000 fans in the stadium there. And for me, that was the first time this season that it felt like a proper game of Premier League football. With the fans in there, Fulham put on a great performance, had a real go at Liverpool, who were still riding high at that stage. So Fulham against Liverpool, 1-1 one, is my favourite game of the season. Moment. I'm going to go for Christian Benteke's late winner at the Amex Stadium. It was an extraordinary game that had seen Brighton absolutely batter Crystal Palace. I think Crystal Palace had two or three touches in the Brighton box in the whole game and scored two goals and won the game 2-1. So Benteke's late winner on the break. That's my Premier League moment of the season. Oh, my overriding thoughts of the uh, Premier League season. Well, two really. My first is how lucky and privileged we have all been to be able to keep attending games throughout the season when everyone else has been locked down. I can't tell you how fortunate I feel to have been able to do that and have a small degree of footballing normality. Having said that, I never want to have to go through that again. The feeling of a game without fans is, I've said it before, it's like food without the flavour. It just hasn't been the same. Not unenjoyable, but certainly not we're used, not what we're used to. So we got a little taste of it at the end. A glorious, beautiful taste at the end with small proportion of fans in. So uh, those are my two thoughts about the, uh, about the Premier League season that's just gone. Right, let's get to our end of season awards then. We're going to start with uh, the teams of the season Nick, this is your 11 players, not the actual club. Who are you going for for your team of the season? 
Ah, okay. Well, I, I found this quite difficult, actually. I, I looked at it last night and thought I'll be able to put this together quickly, but it took me a, took me a little while, And starting with the goalkeeper, actually. In the end, I ended up on Nick Pope. Um, I didn't think there were too many sort of, of... There wasn't really an obvious candidate for me in goal. And I just think he's been... He's excellent. You know, he's always excellent. He always saves Burnley. You know, I mean, if you look at the expected goals data, he's always... Um, he's always saving them you know saving more shots than he really should so I went for a poping goal right back I went for Vladimir Sufal uh, he's just been so reliable for West Ham in, in the middle Ruben Diaz of course at centre back I put him alongside Harry Maguire which some people might disagree with but I just think he's been really good in that defence pretty much held it together single-handedly and we've seen how much they've missed him since he's been injured and the thought of England going to Euros without him actually makes me quite anxious um, <laughs> and then left back I had three candidates there I settled on Jao Cancelo in the end I know he's not he really plays right back doesn't he but I just had to get him in because I I just love the guy and he's sort of reinvented the fullback role this season with that way he um he comes into midfield I thought Andrew Robertson and Luke Shaw were the other ones I could have gone for there um okay midfield Fabinho um just because he's been outstanding um this season for Liverpool in such difficult circumstances and I just think he's the best in the Premier League at that kind of holding role for me um, and then with him in midfield is uh, Bruno Fernandes, of course. I don't think you can leave him out. And Ilkay Gundogan, um, who obviously was so important for City during that period when they kind of ran away with it, wasn't he? Scoring so many goals. Um, and then in the front three, I've got Mount in there, Mason Mount, um, with Salah on the other side and Kane as the central striker. So those are my choices. I know Mount hasn't got amazing numbers for goals and assists this season but I just think he's been so consistent for Chelsea in a, under Lampard and under Tuchel and I had to get him in there with Salah who's obviously been excellent in front of goal as always Okay GB moving on to you I have a feeling I might know who your goalie is um, Emmy Martinez is my goalkeeper um, shock uh, Cancelo I'm going to put as, as my right back um, just brilliant I think people, I know he, he's maybe tailed off a little bit in the last couple months but um yeah he's fantastic and, and a, a pep project really um Cancelo yeah Diaz next to Stones I think they've complemented each other but I think Diaz has also made Stones a fantastic player uh Luke Shaw is my left back um the midfield was the hardest for me um Mason Mount was nailed on for me Chelsea's best player this season I think uh, and Fernandez of course um and then it was a toss-up for me between Gundogan and De Bruyne I think I think if De Bruyne had been a new player in the Premier League this season, he, he we'd be saying, "Wow, who is this guy? He's incredible." But his expectation, our expectations of him are sky high. That he's had a, he still had a probably an eight out of ten season, but um, slightly, slightly less than than previous seasons. But I will go for De Bruyne over Gundogan, and um, the front three for me are Mo Salah, just sneaked in with with plenty of goals for for Liverpool. Uh, without making too much of a fuss. Uh, Harry Kane, of course. And uh, I'll go for Phil Foden uh, as well in that front three. Um, so that'll be my 11. No Grealish? No Grealish. Um, fantastic for Villa. but um, And yeah, he showed he showed what he means to Villa with those, with those 12 games off. Um, but um, he doesn't quite make it for me, no. Ben, any names, instead of making you do a, a full 11 again, uh, any names that you'd like to add into that? Yeah, I suppose I'm the man for the honourable mentions, aren't I here? Um, I think Edison. Edison deserves an honourable mention. I don't think he's been at his absolute 
best when it comes to shot stopping. But think about some of the assists that he's laid on, some of that long range of passing. He's so cool. We all wanted him to take a penalty before the end of the season, didn't we? Uh, Golden Glove again, which again gets overlooked. I know it's City's defence, but he adds so much for in their attack as well. That goal that he, you know, the assist for Gundogan is one that will stick in my memory this season. So I think Edison definitely deserves to be in the conversation again. Um, I think the defenders, everyone was spot on there. I can't think of anyone else. I think Maguire for me probably just about edges stones, just because if you look at the importance that Maguire has to that United defence, he's been absolutely essential. And United, the one thing they don't have, which Liverpool have had, Nick mentioned Fabinho, which City have had with Fernandinho, which Chelsea have got with Kante, which even Leicester have had with Ndidi, is that player who's world-class to sit in front and protect the back four. That's an integral part of any team's defensive solidity. United just rely almost on Maguire to just be the man that stops everything. And I think that shows how good he is. And I'm I'm exactly with Nick. Like, I mean, even if he is only fit from the knockout stages onwards, you need him at the Euros. Um, without him, our defence looks ropey. So Maguire gets a, a really big shout. Diaz has been superb. I've spoken enough about how good he's been. Absolutely brilliant. Um, the only other midfielder I think is worth a mention is KDB, just because he is City's best player. And he, yeah, he's been in outside with injury. I know that this season. Um, that's been overlooked a bit because City have been so good. But he has been... When he has played, some of the passing, the range of passing is spectacular. So he deserves a mention in that conversation. And one more player I think deserves a mention uh, up front is Patrick Bamford. He came up and everyone thought, he's been in the Premier League before, hasn't scored any goals. This is laughable that Leeds are going to go with him as their centre forward. Yes, he misses some chances. But how well has he done? How well have Leeds done overall? But how well has Bamford done to step up, score as many goals as he has? When we talk about Chelsea... And we're all talking about, you know, their attacking talent, how much they spent. And the fact that Bamford got so many goals, um, you know, twice as many as any Chelsea player, I think that is a mark of a really good season. He deserves a mention. Yeah. Uh, I think that there might be a conclusive answer for the player of the season. So I'm going to start with you, Ben. Uh, hopefully I've read the room correctly here. Who are you going with? This is going to be really controversial now as the man that covers Man City. Um, I'm going to go with Harry Kane. Oh. Well, I clearly haven't read the room. Okay. <laughs> yeah, the reason I'm going with Harry Kane, and look, obviously, Ruben Diaz has been absolutely brilliant. In terms of signing of the season, he's head and shoulders above. But Diaz could not have done everything he's done without all the players around him. Kane, the fact he scored and assisted more than any other player, I mean, that's what football's about, isn't it? Scoring goals. It's the hardest thing to do. Kane has done that. He's been involved. He's had more goal involvements, direct goal involvements than any other player by a country mile in a team that's had a pretty awful second half of the season. Um, so I, I just think you can't overlook that. You know, if you're looking at the difficulty that that, ha that skill is, I think you've just got, over the course of the season, I think that just about pips Diaz for me, even though Diaz has been absolutely spectacular. So there you go. Man City reporter hmm. says Harry Kane is player of the season. <laughs> GB? He's made a He's made a pretty compelling case there, I was going to say. Sorry to interrupt, GB, but I'm thinking about now changing my answer myself. <laughs> GB, you, you go. I'll, um, I'll wait my yeah, turn. You have some thinking time then, Nick, before you make your decision. Ben, you make a, definitely make a compelling argument. I actually haven't even thought of Kane, but it is Diaz for me. A complete colossal. And they say the best players make those around them better. And I, I think, I don't think you've got a better case study there than John Stones. Um, there, there's a few contenders this year, but Diaz definitely for me. Nick, 
That's the thinking yeah. time you're going to get. It's between Diaz <laughs> and Kane, isn't it? Who are you going it with? It is, yeah. I'm going to go with Diaz. I'm going to stick with Diaz. I think Kane is a very strong shout, but Diaz has just totally transformed um, Manchester City's defence and I don't think they would have won the title without him. Uh, he's been outstanding, hasn't he, in the Champions League as well. Um, so, yeah, I'll go for Ruben Diaz. Okay, Nick, what about your game of the season? Yeah, I... Um, been I some crackers choose, this year. There have been some crackers, there really have. I, I, I decided to choose a game I actually I actually went to and settled on Chelsea 2, Leicester 1 at Stamford Bridge last week, actually. Um, just a fantastic atmosphere with fans back in the stands at Stamford Bridge and you know so much riding on that game and it really had a bit of everything and it obviously was decisive, wasn't it, in, in terms of the top four race with Chelsea getting in there despite losing on the final day. And it even had that massive brawl near the end of the game. So, I mean, what's what's not to like? A very enjoyable game and great one to be at. So I choose that for my game of the season. GB, are you going with the obvious here, being a Villa fan, or have you got something else? I thought you'd criticise me if I didn't go for this. Because, you know, you'd probably think I'd go, for a, do, nil, yeah. for, a go for a nil-nil draw, Jasper, or something like that. But, yeah. <laughs> Two would, incredible defensive displays. <laughs> it would be. I think Nick's. I think Nick picking a game with fans in is is really relevant, and I'm glad he's. I'm glad uh, you've you've gone for that. I'm, I'm, I'll just go for the seven two win. Villa's seven uh, two win over Liverpool. I did think football had broken on that Monday, or that we'd started imagining things. I was a little bit concerned that we were never going to see proper football again. Um, it was a bit like a video game. But an honourable mention to Man United's six two win over Leeds. Which had just the uh, just the forty three shots on goal. That was a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, all of these games would have would have been five times as good with uh, with fans in them. But I'll go for the seven two. Ben, I thought for a second there we were going to have to say games we were actually at. In which case, I would have had to have gone for the FA Trophy final. In the only game I've been to this season. Uh, my mate played for Hereford and they lost to Hornchurch at Wembley. I was there at the weekend. So uh, I won't go for that, though, because it was a largely forgettable second half from a Hereford point of view. Um, <laughs> Leeds against Man City. And if that game had had, had fans at Ellen Road, it would have been absolutely amazing. I mean, that was both heavyweight boxers throwing right, left hooks, uppercuts, trying to land a knockout blow. It ended up being one all. There's, there was a great dynamic, obviously, between the managers in Bielsa and Pep. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a great game back in October. Um, City probably deserved to win on chances, but if that if Ellen Road had been full, that would have been incredible. And I can't wait. I mean, look, it sounds like Bielsa's staying for another year. I cannot wait to hopefully have fans back here at Ellen Road next year and actually see these games with that backdrop. I think they'll be every bit, what, a lot more intense even. And that was an intense game. Interesting. Okay, so no mentions for Tottenham six, Manchester United one at Old Trafford, and surely an honourable mention. Uh, it, it may get in some of your moments of the season, but the Tottenham three, West Ham three game, where West Ham was three nil down uh, after eighty odd minutes and came back to get the uh, the draw. There was a pretty phenomenal game as well. But we have been blessed with many many great games this season so let's get your moment of the season then Nick. Uh, my moment of the season has got to be Allison scoring against West Brom. Um, Gerald talks about fo thinking football was broken when Liverpool beat Aston Villa 7-2. I, I felt the same when Allison scored actually. I was in the car in the towards the end of that game I was listening to it on the radio and then I, I just I got home and I came into the house 
you know, with about two minutes to go. And when I got in the house, I checked my phone and my phone said Alison, you know, Alison 90 or whatever on it. And I was like, what, what's happened here? This must be a mistake. And I turned on the TV and, and there he was celebrating. So no, that was my moment, just a completely surreal moment. Something you just wish, you know, everyone longs to see a goalkeeper stick one in the back of the net. And um, it was just a great moment. I'm not a Liverpool fan, but, um, you know, you have to enjoy stuff like that, don't you? GB, can it be topped by anything? It, it can't. It is my moment, but I just think we should should mention it's not really a moment in time, but these last few days, fans being back in grounds, personally for me, and I know for other football fans, that's been the best thing to happen this season. If we're, if we're going to take one thing away from this season, it's that, it's that fans are the game, and we should never forget that. It's, it's just not the same. Uh, without them, and nobody can can convince me otherwise. So we'll go for Allison, but an honourable mention to uh, to the fans. Ben, I'm going to take a bit of what Nick said, and I'm going to take a bit of what Gerard said, um, because my moment of the season was actually the European Super League when football was broken for like 48 hours, and then the fans and everything, the groundswell of opinion, football united, uh, and we ended that absolute charade. Um, like, but wow, like that was something that will live in my memory forever because that was one of those hugely seismic moments that you don't ever think can happen. And then the world literally changes overnight. And it did that Sunday afternoon when all the, all the clubs involved put out that ridiculous statement carrying quotes from the likes of Joel Glazer um, and then went into radio silence and being a reporter working in the Northwest where we had three clubs involved, um, in particular, obviously covering it from a city point of view, most of all, but just, just, wow, that, that was stunning. Uh, and yeah, thank goodness that order was restored, but wow. Yeah. That's my moment. Okay. Last question of today, guys. Uh, I just want to know, looking ahead to next season from all three of you, your Premier League winners for next season and your surprise package. Nick? Um, Premier League winners, I think I'll probably go for Man City again. Although I think I do think Liverpool will push them close again. I think it will be another tight race. Um, and obviously there will be other teams trying to trying to push for that as well, won't there? But I, I think Man City to pick Liverpool is my prediction. And what was the second one? Sorry, surprise package. Your surprise package of the season. Yeah, I mean, can you call Leeds a surprise package anymore? I'm not sure. They finished ninth, haven't they? But um, I was looking at the mid-table clubs, trying to think of who I, who I think could... Uh, achieve something more next season and I couldn't see any anyone apart from Leeds to, to choose really I think they'll they'll continue to make progress under Bielsa and they'll probably finish higher than ninth next season GB yeah City go for the safe choice there but I think there'll be there are plenty of rivals um, surprise package this is a tough one I'd, similar to Nick I'd love to see where Leeds buy this summer because their team is still not far off the team that they had in the championship uh, a couple of years ago, Everton had some woeful home form, but I think they have a good manager. I think they they could uh, they could push again next season. But for me, I'm most intrigued with Leeds because um, they've managed to stay exciting throughout the year. And I've, I've questions at time at times whether it's naive, uh, and I think at times it has been naive. But you know they're a newly promoted side and they finish in the top ten. So I, I, I say keep rolling the dice and and playing that way because it quite clearly works. Ben. I think winners, yeah, Manchester City. Um, it's the hardest thing in football, I think, to retain a Premier League title. Uh, but City have done it. And they did it in the most remarkable circumstances uh, in 2019 um, when they managed to come from behind and beat Liverpool. Um, and I think they're the team to beat. They'll only get stronger. It sounds like they're going to spend if they get a Kane. I don't think they'll get a Haaland this summer just because of the fee. But um, if they get a Kane, 
Uh, if they get a Messi, I mean, that could still happen. Um, yeah, I think I can't see past them. Um, and then, yeah, surprise package. I mean, I sometimes think I must look at football completely differently to everyone because Leeds, fair enough, I, I agree. Like, they, um, yeah, I expect big things from them. But I'm going to go with Newcastle. Yes, that's right. I did say that. I said Newcastle. And the reason is, here's my case. They won five of the last eight matches when the pressure was really on. Think how toxic it was for Bruce. You probably had fans, that you probably had fans, because I know how fans think, wanting them to get relegated so they could change everything, right? There would have been those people. I hope we lose so we go down. He he dealt with all of that. He got them playing in a really difficult situation without their best players. Callum Wilson was missing for half the season. He was a brilliant signing. Um, Alison Maxman was missing for half the season. A brilliant signing. Maximum, so Maximum came back, Wilson came back with almost a bit of a cameo. If they're fit next year, if they can sign Joe Willock, then Newcastle. Newcastle. <laughs> okay. Newcastle, Newcastle it is, Ben. <laughs> right. We'll take Top your word off. for it. Um, okay, then. <laughs> right. Um, before we end the show, we've got to get to the teaser answer. Just a reminder of what it was, chaps. Harry Kane finished the season as both the top scorer and top assister in the Premier League this season. Only the second time a player has finished with both the outright most goals and assists in the competition. After who? Who is the only other player? Ben? I can't answer this because I saw this on the output uh, Sky Sports yesterday. So, sorry. Okay, you're out then, Ben. Um, <laughs> very, very honest, GB. Ben. <laughs> yeah. um, I think people are going to say Thierry Henry, but I, I, I've said Thierry Henry. I'm going to go for Andy Cole. Okay, Nick, who are you going with? Yeah, I've said Henry. GB, do you have a year? When he played for Newcastle, it's not. I know it's not Henry because when he got top assist, um, Van Nistelrooy got top scorer. I'm pretty sure. Uh, you know, this is peak. This is peak me sitting in front of the TV all day watching Premier League. Um, uh, it's it's in his Newcastle years. years. It's in his Newcastle years for Cole. Yeah, it was indeed Andy Cole. GB, you finished the season with a win, nineteen ninety three, ninety four. So congratulations and thank you all for uh, your company today and throughout the season as well. Just a few things uh, to make you aware of. If you're listening to this on Monday, you can join a few of us tonight on the Sky Sports News Twitter page. We're going to be doing a Twitter Spaces looking ahead to England's Euro 2020 squad announcement. That is from 7pm on Monday evening. And we will be back as well in just two weeks' time as we rebrand to the Sky Sports Football Euros podcast. We'll be bringing you all the previews, all the reviews and the best analysis from the European Championship. Uh, but for today, we'll leave you with the voice of football himself as Martin Tyler sums up a bizarre but unforgettable Premier League season. Well, most memorable match, so many to choose from. Uh, I started the season actually at Anfield, Liverpool 4, Leeds 3, Leeds returned to the Premier League after a long absence. Yeah, that was a great game, Mo Salah hat-trick, just squeezed it for Liverpool at the end, but it gave us a taste of what Bielsa's football was going to be about. And I have picked a, a Leeds game just a few weeks later at home to Manchester City. It was a thrilling match. Uh, 1-1 on the scoreline makes it sound mundane, but it was attack after attack. Uh, Leeds were obviously feeling their way into the Premier League, and this was a big challenge for them. 
And Manchester City were in that awkward stage at the start of their season when they didn't really hit their straps. And it led, of course, to a revision, really, from Pep Guardiola and his players a few weeks after that. But it was just a captivating game. We really didn't want it to finish. Gary and I were um, really enthralled by the action. And probably 1-1 was a fair result in the sense it was a draw, but it could have been 4-4, 5-5 quite easily. Best moment of the season? That is really tricky as well. But Alisson's goal that uh, won the game for Liverpool at West Bromwich Albion would have to be there because it never happened before. I was fortunate it happened on my watch for Liverpool. They were very fortunate it happened at all because had they not got uh, the goalkeeper up there to score the goal, I think they would not be celebrating as they are now, uh, qualifying for the Champions League. It was a terrific effort by Alisson himself. Uh, I would like to add uh, the thrill of meeting Sergio Aguero uh, nine years after the 2012 title-winning goal and the fact that I'm sort of linked with it with uh, being the commentator for Sky on the game. That was a big thrill. And, and to carry that, it was the Wednesday before the last Sunday of the season to be able to um, find some words for his send-off as well. That was also very, very special. As for reflections on the season itself, my overriding emotion at the end is how lucky we were to have a football season from... On high, really, the government obviously saw value in uh, the Premier League games being broadcast and indeed the Football League games as well. And on Sky, of course, we were the providers, the purveyors of the action. And it gave us, all of us working on the television side, a chance to move around the country when other less fortunate people were stuck at home in the lockdown. Um, and that privilege was something that almost by the hour, I think all the commentators appreciated that we could travel, we could stay in hotels. And of course, we were amongst the very fortunate few to be allowed into the football grounds. So total gratitude, massive respect for the way um, the support came from within our industry. Our bosses at Sky Sports were uh, totally behind all the difficulties we faced on the road. But uh, those difficulties um, were totally outweighed by the privilege, the sense of privilege that we were given the opportunity to go and, and hopefully bring shine a bit of light into the dark times. It was great to see the crowds in the last couple of games, a sign hopefully of better things to come. But this will always be that season of COVID-19, the pandemic, however you define it yourself. It was a season that probably shouldn't have happened, but did happen. And well done to everybody involved. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. You're listening to Business English Pod, the Business English podcast for professionals on the move. Hello and welcome back to Business English Pod for today's lesson on doing an online job interview. Today, we're going to look at some tips for online interviews. 
especially how to relate your experience to a new field of work. Before we get started, a quick reminder that this lesson, along with hundreds of others, is available as a free download from the BEP website. Premium members can also access a PDF transcript and online quizzes for every lesson. If you'd like to take a free trial to preview some of these extra resources, just head over to www.businessenglishpod.com. Just a few years ago, you might have been surprised if a prospective employer requested an online interview. After all, we often think of interviews as a good chance to meet face-to-face. -face. But these days, in many sectors, online interviews are completely normal. In fact, with the move towards remote work, many newly hired people have never met their colleagues or boss face-to-face. -face. This is part of a shake-up in the world of work, brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. Early in the pandemic, millions of people lost their jobs. Now, more and more of those people are getting hired for new positions, often in different industries. And to get those jobs, they likely had to talk about how they would transfer their experience to a different line of work. One of the things you'll have to deal with in an online interview is, of course, possible technical issues. It's a good idea to be able to deal with such problems calmly and confidently. Another important skill in any interview is talking about how you added value in your previous position. When it comes to transferring experience, you'll need to consider how to discuss similarities between the industry you're leaving and the one you're hoping to find work in. And given the uncertainty of the pandemic, it's a good idea to talk about how you've adapted to change and demonstrated learning. In today's dialogue, we'll listen to part of an online interview for the job of operations manager at a property management company. Rachel is applying for the job after working for many years in operations at a hotel chain. Let's hear how she answers the interviewer's questions, deals with technical issues, and talks about transferring her experience. As you listen to the dialogue, try to answer the following questions. 1. What accomplishment does Rachel feel demonstrates her value at her last job? 2. What did Rachel focus on during the transition to remote work? 3. What kinds of learning did Rachel focus on in her last job? All right. Well, that's good to hear. Now, maybe we can talk a bit about your time at Century Hotels. You were there for seven years, right? Yes, just over seven years, actually. Uh, uh-oh, hold on. Just give me a sec. Sound's dropping out. Going to switch to earbuds. Okay, that's better. Thanks. No worries. So, Century Hotels. I'd like to know more about what you think you accomplished there. Anything stand out that you're particularly proud of? Well, yes. I think I did really good work there, and one big thing I'd say was overhauling our maintenance contracts. We had some outdated arrangements, so to speak. One of many things held over from previous ownership. In the end, I was able to shave 12% off maintenance costs, and the work being done was to a higher standard. So yeah, 
that was a big thing for me. And that's fairly recent? Before the pandemic. I think I started that process a year before our big downsizing in June. I see. And when you say maintenance contracts, you're talking about what exactly? Interior and exterior, basic maintenance, upkeep and cleaning. Though not room cleaning, of course. Uh, on-call work, but also seasonal priorities. Very much the same as what you'd be doing for a residential property. So, it sounds like your role was managerial. That's right. At Century, they call it a coordinator position, but definitely managerial in nature. Okay. And so that involved managing people, too? Yes. I was responsible for the team in San Diego. Four direct reports. So when COVID hit, were you still in the office day-to-day, or did you go remote or hybrid? What did that look like? We were pretty quick to go remote, and we really didn't know how long it would be, but I wanted to make sure we could do it as long as necessary. So I really focused on getting the right tools and training for the team and tried to embrace it. You didn't find that challenging, working from home? Trying to manage a staff and all that? It was definitely challenging. For everyone. Managing people is inherently challenging, even without the distance. But I looked into training and really tried to improve my skills at virtual facilitation and remote management overall. Now let's go through the dialogue again and look at the language and techniques Rachel used during her interview. We join the interview just as Kevin is asking about her past experience. All right. Well, that's good to hear. Now, maybe we can talk a bit about your time at Century Hotels. You were there for seven years, right? Yes, just over seven years, actually. Uh, uh uh-oh. Hold on. Just give me a sec. Sound's dropping out. Going to switch to earbuds. Okay, that's better. Thanks. Unfortunately, just as Rachel begins talking about her experience at Sentry Hotels, her sound starts dropping out or getting interrupted. But she doesn't get confused or frustrated. As you can hear, first she calmly states what the problem is. Then, instead of just remaining silent while she fixes it, she explains what she's doing. Technical troubles are just a regular part of online work life. When you have to deal with them, it's good to just stay calm and talk about what's going on. This way the other person or people can understand what's happening, and you can avoid an awkward silence. What are some other ways of talking through a technical problem during an online interview? Let's practice some more examples. Hmm, looks like my video isn't on. Let me just fix that. Seems there's no sound, so just going to adjust my speakers. Please hold on a sec. I need to reset my connection here. Oh, that's much too bright, isn't it? Maybe if I turn this light off. 
Now let's hear Kevin ask a bit more specific question about Rachel's time at Century Hotels. No worries. So, Century Hotels, I'd like to know more about what you think you accomplished there. Anything stand out that you're particularly proud of? Well, yes. I think I did really good work there. And one big thing I'd say was overhauling our maintenance contracts. We had some outdated arrangements, so to speak. One of many things held over from previous ownership. In the end, I was able to shave 12% off maintenance costs, and the work being done was to a higher standard. So yeah, that was a big thing for me. Kevin wants to know about any accomplishments that stand out or that are especially important to Rachel. This kind of question is an opportunity to highlight your impact, and you'd best be ready with a good answer. As Rachel shows, a good answer is specific. She talks about how she overhauled or totally changed the company's maintenance contracts, which were outdated or old. And she doesn't just say what she did. She explains the results of what she did. In particular, she talks about cutting costs by 12% and improving the quality of work. Talking about how you added value at a previous workplace is crucial in any job interview. Let's try some more ways of doing this. The sales training program I implemented led to a 15% increase in revenue. The system I introduced was almost twice as efficient as the old one. Well, one thing I brought to the company was a vast network of retail contacts. I was able to bring our proposal success rate up to 60%. Kevin wants to hear more about Rachel's accomplishment. As you can hear, he also wants to ensure this was a recent accomplishment, which is a good reminder to focus on fairly current achievements. And that's fairly recent? Before the pandemic. I think I started that process a year before our big downsizing in June. I see. And when you say maintenance contracts, you're talking about what exactly? Interior and exterior, basic maintenance, upkeep and cleaning. Though not room cleaning, of course. Uh, on-call work, but also seasonal priorities. Very much the same as what you'd be doing for a residential property. If you're applying for a job in a different industry or field of work, you can bet the interviewer is wondering if your skills are transferable. So take the opportunity to show similarities between the industries whenever you can. In this case, Kevin wants more information about the maintenance contracts at the hotel company. Rachel mentions several aspects of the contracts, including upkeep or regular maintenance, and both interior and exterior, or inside and outside work. As she says, this is similar to what Kevin's company would do for a residential property. Note that property management companies might deal with residential properties, such as apartments and condos, or commercial properties for business use. Let's run through some more ways of emphasizing similarities between the field that you're coming from and the field that you're hoping to enter. 
I think many of the problems you see in mining are similar to those in forestry. On the surface, they look different, but there are a lot of structural similarities. These two industries are similar in that both are very dependent on oil. Yes, I understand this kind of regulation is important in real estate as well. Next, Kevin wants to talk more about Rachel's previous position and responsibilities. He asks if her role was managerial or involved aspects of management. So, it sounds like your role was managerial. That's right. At Century, they call it a coordinator position, but definitely managerial in nature. Okay. And so that involved managing people too? Yes. I was responsible for the team in San Diego. Four direct reports. As Rachel explains, her role was definitely managerial, as she had four direct reports, or people she supervised. This topic leads Kevin to ask about Rachel's experience when the pandemic started or hit. So when COVID hit, were you still in the office day to day? Or did you go remote or hybrid? What did that look like? We were pretty quick to go remote, and we really didn't know how long it would be, but I wanted to make sure we could do it as long as necessary. So I really focused on getting the right tools and training for the team and tried to embrace it. COVID affected workplaces in many different ways. Some businesses and some people adapted well, but others didn't. Kevin wants to hear about Rachel's experience, in particular whether they shifted to remote work from home or adopted a hybrid or mixed approach. Rachel takes this question as an opportunity to show how she is able to adapt to change. She emphasizes how she tried to get the right tools and training for her team. And she doesn't complain about change, but rather talks about how she embraced or welcomed the change. What are some other ways we can show a positive approach to dealing with change? Let's run through some more examples. I saw the changes as an opportunity to improve my technical skills. It was important for me to learn how the new managers communicated. It was definitely a challenge at first, but I came to see it as an opportunity for personal development. I had to find new ways to work with the marketing team. Rachel tried embracing the change, but of course, change is hard, and Kevin wants to know about the challenges. Let's listen. You didn't find that challenging, working from home, trying to manage a staff and all that? It was definitely challenging, for everyone. Managing people is inherently challenging, even without the distance. But I looked into training and really tried to improve my skills at virtual facilitation and remote management overall. In an interview, you don't have to pretend that everything is easy or that you never face challenges. Instead, you can use these challenges to show how you solve problems. As Rachel says, managing people is inherently challenging, 
or naturally challenging, even without the complexities of remote work. But she shows how she focused on learning to overcome these challenges. For example, she did training on virtual facilitation or running meetings with online tools. Showing a learner's attitude is especially important if you're hoping to transfer your skills to a new field of work. So let's practice some more examples of demonstrating learning. I decided it was a good idea to take an online course on design. I was confused at first, but I found some videos that taught me the basics. It took a while, but I was able to get good enough to help my coworkers. Joining a new team was a good chance to learn about different work styles. So Rachel seems to be doing very well in her interview. She's overcome some early technical issues and highlighted some good achievements and a positive approach to change and learning. Now let's practice some of the language we learned in today's lesson. Imagine you have a background in software, but are now interviewing for a job in healthcare. You'll hear a cue from the interviewer, then I'll give you a suggestion for what you can say in response. We'll guide you through each step in the practice and provide an example answer for each response. Ready? Let's give it a go. All right, so, uh-oh. Is there an issue with your video or something? Start by saying you'll adjust your webcam and confirming the fix. Answer. Maybe. Let me just adjust my webcam. How's that? Ah, okay. That's better. So you were telling me what you did at Doyle Tech? Now say that you gave a big boost to research at the company. Answer. Yes, I believe I gave a big boost to research at the company. I see. And do you think that is something that would be useful in this position? Next, say that both software and healthcare rely a lot on research and development. Answer. Certainly. Both software and healthcare rely on research and development. True enough. So, you were at Doyle when they moved into Spain. Confirm you were and say that you were able to build new relationships quickly. Answer. I was, and I think I was really able to build new relationships quickly there. That must have been difficult. I mean, with the language barrier? Finally, say that you actually studied Spanish for six months before the move. Answer. 
Well, I actually studied Spanish for six months before the move. Now let's practice some of the vocabulary we've covered in this lesson. In a moment, you'll hear a series of sentences with a word replaced with a beep. Repeat each sentence, including the missing word. For example, if you hear, This year, we really need to completely our safety manual. You can say, This year, we really need to completely overhaul our safety manual. After each response, we'll provide the correct answer. Let's begin. We expect our proposals to be written to a very high Answer. We expect our proposals to be written to a very high standard. I spend a lot more time in meetings now that I have six direct. Answer. I spend a lot more time in meetings now that I have six direct reports. With a great home office, I'm really happy we've gone to work. Answer. With a great home office, I'm really happy we've gone to remote work. The IT consultant thinks our website is very old and Answer. The IT consultant thinks our website is very old and outdated. We've reached the end of this lesson, the first in our series on online interviews. We've learned how to deal calmly with technical issues, talk about how you added value, and discuss similarities between industries. We've also looked at how to show you can adapt to change and how to demonstrate learning. For more practice, premium members can access the online quizzes and PDF transcripts for this and other lessons on the BEP website. Not a member yet? Then head over to www.businessenglishpod.com and sign up for a free trial to preview some of the extra resources available to members. Thanks for listening, and see you again soon. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. The killing of George Floyd on May the 25th, 2020 in Minneapolis by now former U.S. police officer Derek Chauvin sparked global protests against police brutality and racism. Some similarities in the public response have been drawn to that that followed the murder of Stephen Lawrence, who was 18, when he was killed by a racist gang in southeast London in 1993. It began peacefully enough, around a thousand people marching in the cause of racial harmony. But feeling in this area is running high at present, and underlying tension was soon to surface. 
Stephen's family share the pain of losing their loved one in such shocking circumstances, as well as the difficulties of being thrust into the media and public spotlight in their quest for justice. It'll be a year today, roughly about 10.30 tonight, that Stephen was murdered. A whole year of suffering and feeling as if no one really cares. Our main concern now is to try and get justice for Stephen Lawrence. Stephen's younger brother was 16 when he died. Stuart was watching television with his wife and young son when he first saw the murder of George Floyd. I was horrified. I was horrified to see the images, to see the video. I haven't watched it all. I've never watched it all. Uh, I think the most I've watched is like three or four minutes of it. I just can't. My big thing about it was is all the people that stood there watching and did nothing. That's what first got me about it all. And then the reaction afterwards has been phenomenal. It's another point in, in the world and time where we can move the conversation forward again. And um, hopefully that not just only talk about things, because this is what I'm mindful as well, that we speak a lot about things. There's lots of conversations going on, but I say to people, how much does that turn into action? How much does that turn into tangible things that you can then go, wow, like that happened. And then this and this was talked about. And then they did this and that made a massive big difference. And then we'd be able to move forward because this is what it is for me. We, we, we talk about things and we, we get frustrated, but it doesn't perpetuate into action. Wouldn't it be great to say that we're a country that we, we have no place or time for anyone that wants to persecute anyone because of things they can't change? So those nine protected characteristics, we stand by them as, as fundamental blocks of it's unacceptable for anyone to say right, do anything against anyone in those protected characteristics. And wouldn't that be a great advertisement for us the world to say, look, wow, look at Great Britain, look what they've done of how to tackle and to eradicate problems in society. So how much has really changed? Will younger generations be the difference in tackling discrimination? And will better representation lead to a more inclusive society? Welcome to the Sky News Daily Podcast with me, Dermot Murnahan, as we examine the story beyond the headline. Just been watching the football and stuff. And I'm an Arsenal fan. So oh, well, buddy, we're in the same yeah. boat, don't worry. Oh, oh that's oh, great. Stuart. A rubbish great. season, so that's, yeah, that's don't a, worry. That's a relief. Um, My name's Stuart Lawrence. I am the younger brother, Stephen Lawrence. I am a husband. I'm a dad, I'm an ex-school teacher, now author. I go around and I speak to young people about the impact of choices that you can make and the impact they have on each other. Generally trying to make the world a better place than what, I, what I've seen it as I've been here to when I leave it. So that's just that's who I am. You know, let's just start as we should with, with memories of, of Stephen. He was, what, two years older than you? Your big brother and you describe him as a superhero. Yeah, uh, just because, I, as I said, I shared the bedroom with him from the age of five. And I think before going to sleep every night, you know, sharing and speaking to someone, it has a massive impact on your life. And yeah, we just, I just remember wanting to be like him so much. Um, you know, he, he had some really cool friends. He had the coolest clothes. He listened to the coolest music. He had his finger on the pulse of life, so to speak. And, and I just wanted to 
to emulate him as much as I could. That's why I describe him as my superhero, because just, I just looked up to him and I just wanted to be like him so much. When he was taken from you, taken from us, he was on the cusp of adulthood, 18. Had he talked to you about any of those, those plans for the future? I think what, what really the, the whole main driving for was, was for Stephen was the architecture side of things. Yeah. And he was so, this was the emergence of hip hop uh, and sort of the music from America. So he was really onto that as well. And I just, like I said, I just remember him just super excited about where he was going next. And he went to go to concerts and stuff as well. There was a, a program called The Word on Channel 4. Yeah which he used to be able to sneak on and get on there sometimes and meet with the guys, all the, the rappers from America and stuff. So, yeah, he was just living life. And, yeah, as I said, architecture and studying and going to university was something he really wanted to do and become himself. So they're the conversations and things we spoke about at the time. Stuart recently published a book called Silence is Not an Option. You Can Impact the World for Change. So tell me about the decision to write the book and, you know, it's 28 years. Is, is there a reason that it's taken that long or just tell me? Yes and no. I, I suppose after being a school teacher and then understanding the importance of the, what books can do for, for young people and how you can use them to change and influence people, I suppose that's what wanted me to write a book. But then also just the stress of life and the, the rung of life just didn't ever think I'd have the time. And then sort of lockdown happened and my busy diary got blown out of the water and I was sitting at home twiddling my thumbs. And I say to people all the time, like as a school teacher for, for 17 years, uh, 11 year olds, when they used to come in at the year seven, so like bright eyed September, you know, big bags, big blazers, big coats and stuff. Uh, I used to love it because it was the expressions on their faces and you could just see that it was ticking away in their mind because they were the big I am in their primary schools. And all of a sudden, it's like someone pulls a rug from them and all of a sudden, they're looking at these kids going, oh, my God, like, they're so big. And then all of a sudden, there's like seven or eight different teachers you've got to get to know and to know what they want and what they don't like. And it's just remarkable. But I always say to them, like, it's a brilliant time to reinvent yourself. Whatever you now want to be, this is the next part now into adulthood where you can make choices about careers and the direction of your life you want to go in. So, yeah, as I say, it was just how can I help them get through this thing called education and school, secondary school, as painless as possible with as much help and guidance as possible. So that's why we wrote the book. So you're talking about, what, 10, 11 years old and writing in an accessible way for that age group, obviously that that teaching experience, you've just explained it, that, that was massively helpful. Super helpful because... And that's also, I think, what some adults get a bit mystified about. It's not a case of you have to talk down to them. You just need to be a bit more descriptive in the, in, in the language you use and a bit more relatable so they can they can start to put the blocks in to join things up. And I always say to people as well, there was a book I read as a young child called What Adults Say But What They Really Mean. And I read this book, age 10 myself, and thinking to myself, I've cracked it now. I, I know what they're up to. So the things like when they used to say to me, have you tidied up your room yet? They're saying to me, go and tidy your room. That's what they're saying really there. They know I haven't tidied up. So it just gave me this insight to, to the way that adults would speak to me. And then from that point, I just realised it's, it's about how that meeting of people, and it doesn't matter who they are, young, old, it's, it's, it's how do you broach something and then find a common place and then from there build on it. 
Were you and Stephen big readers when you were kids? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's one of those things we never had the distraction of the computer games. You know, the TV when I was growing, three channels. I remember the full. I remember Channel Four starting, and then a couple of years after, I remember Channel Five starting. It was just like, oh my god, we got five channels now! Like, wow, we're like we've hit the big time. It was just a form of entertainment. It was a form of escapism to do something. It's a lot harder now to get them to read. And that's something that, again, my own son, who's 10, it's a challenge for me to get him to read more. Um, As I go around to schools, that's one of my key things to tell kids as well, about the importance of reading and what it can do for you and how it can help you go forward in life as well. So, And as writing the book, Stuart, has it helped with that process? I know it's a process that never ends of dealing with the anger, the grief. Is this part of that process? I mean, not the main reason, but of course, nevertheless, you know, a byproduct. Definitely. And it wasn't until 2018, really, I, I realised I was on some sort of hamster wheel from 16. So I went to school the next day after Stephen died. Like, I, we, I was really sort of like, yeah, I know, I was on this mission because education and learning, it just never came easy for me. I, my mum mentioned it recently, how... You know, she never had to worry about Stephen and him doing his work and obtaining and, and getting on where she did have to worry about me. And that's because I didn't find out I was dyslexic until I was 21, 22. So I had to work at it a bit harder. And then I just really developed like a steely attitude of learning is cool. And it's got something that you could do every day. And you've just got to keep pushing forward on that. Later on, we discussed how far he thinks we've come since his brother's death. I want to compare and contrast, or maybe just compare, um, then and now. Silence is not an option. We've got that word silence. And of course, you know, that's one of the key words in the Black Lives Matter movement. Silence is violence. I mean, is that is that a deliberate resonance with right now? And is it telling us, Stuart, that, you know, a lot hasn't really changed since 1993? Uh, a little bit. For me, it was about empowerment. In my acknowledgements, I put a note in there about Greta Thunberg because for me, it's one person's steely determination, you know, one person's small voice that's developed into a much louder voice because she consistently said the same thing. Like, there's something wrong. The environment needs to be fixed. We need to do something about it, guys. I can't do nothing by myself. I need the adults involved. And she just kept on saying that. And then she just galvanised the thought. Sometimes there's other people who aren't able to speak up. Should we not speak for them? We should speak for them like that. That's, again, what it's about, isn't it? If you can see someone that's in help in need, there's something innate about us as human beings to try and want to help. But as you're saying there, I mean, it takes also constant vigilance, constant actions on it, because the job is never done. You know, thinking back to your brother's murder, we had the McPherson report. That's a long time ago now. And in the McPherson report, I mean... It was, I'm sure, you, you can tell us uh, in many forms about its deficiencies, but it identified, and it was a revelation to many people uh, in the UK, it identified institutional racism within the police forces, which many people thought, oh, no, that can't be the case. And, of course, uh, defined race-hate crime. And as I'm saying, you know, we're talking a couple of decades and more ago, yet these are still major, major issues, which, um, as you've just been telling us, we need to keep working on. We need to keep pushing. Definitely. There has been some progress made. And this is what I say to people. I don't want to be one of these people say, oh, no, it's all bad. Nothing's changed. Some things have changed. Some things have progressed forward. But we're at this point now where we're looking and some people are saying, 
it feels like we've gone backwards slightly. So, you know, I, I'm doing some work with the Met Police myself around cultural understanding and community cohesion. But that's still nearly 20 years on since McPherson. So the motions just need to go a bit quicker. So people can go, oh, wow, we have. And even though you know, this is part of the stuff that we've been doing recently, look at the Sewer Report. The Sewer Report makes the same recommendations that the McPherson does about police training, around community cohesion, around stop and search, and around police attitude tools. These are same messages. That's my frustration. How can we talk about the same thing? And then we've just heard that we're not, the police is no longer institutionally racist. How's that happened? When, when did we get to the point where they were institutionally racist to the point where now where they say, we're no longer, we've, we've managed to crack it. You know, we've, those are the, the things that make the everyday public person look at you and go, well, I don't think you have. And that mistrust and that misunderstanding, that's where it stems from. I feel so sorry for Cressida Dick about it as well, because she's only trying to do what she can. And I'm sure from, from like I said, from 99 to now, there has been massive progress made with the police forces and, and, and their attitudes and stuff. But we, we need to make sure that we're identifying and saying where things went wrong so that we know where we were then so that we can move better forward in the future. A year ago, George Floyd was killed on camera. His death led to mass protest in the US. But it also inspired a movement here in the UK. People demanding change. This is Stuart Lawrence. And you made uh, a TV documentary, haven't you, with some of our TV colleagues? I mean, have you found that this is, as you've, you've gone around the country, I know you've been talking to a lot of very different people, who've, some of whom have been involved in the, in the recent protests, that it is now embedded as part of the national conversation? Yes, it is embedded. I definitely say that. Um, I feel like sometimes the focus of it does slightly veer off at certain times and I'm, I'm fearful that you know especially now that we've got the vaccine and things are starting to get back to some sort of normality that you know people's attention and focus will slip and go back to everything's okay the world's great you know I've gone on holiday there is no problems and that sort of blinkered approach which I, I think a lot of us had our blinkers removed since lockdown where we've had to stop and look and listen and pay attention and realise that, you know, things are not all as great and rosy as we think they may be for everyone. What do you think about some of the symbols that say, and I'm talking about taking the knee here, um, you know, that, that say it's not OK. You know, some people saying, well, look, it's that's just turned into virtue signalling now. It doesn't mean anything. Or, or is it important? What do you think? And I, I think it's a personal choice. I, one of the young people asked me recently about Wilfred Saha not taking the knee, what my impression and what my thoughts around that was. And I was saying, do you know what? I, lo- I like that people are allowed to express their own opinions. And for me, yes, it's a great symbol but is it really making the changes and really pushing the agenda forward? Because play, football players are still being racially abused on social media. I love the symbolism behind it all. I love that it creates talking points and it brings attention to things. But whether that will be the one thing that eradicates it or pushes it forward, I'm not too sure that will be it. But again, it's a start. It, it helps the conversation. It helps the movement forward. Coming up, I want to bring you someone who's trying to drive change from within. My name is Ramal Davis. I'm a youth outreach worker 
from Nottinghamshire Police. My dad was actually born in Jamaica and when they came over here, some of them came over during the Wimrush generation. When my dad got to 16 years old, there wasn't very many opportunities for, for black people at that age back then. So he ended up joining the army. We were based in Germany, so I was actually born in a military hospital. I came over here when I was around four years old. I think for me, you know, it was really, really nice growing up in a household with mum and dad both at home, who were fantastic role models for me. They went out to work every day, so that really instilled that kind of work ethic in me. I remember one Christmas when everyone had a PlayStation well before I did, um, and then I got a PlayStation and I actually broke down in tears because everything we got, it was like gold because they really made us see that, that you have to work hard for something and you have to behave and that is really affecting me till today because it, it's given me that same uh, structure that kind of belief that you need to work hard to achieve things in life and nothing easy comes for free. Romel's childhood memories were not all positive. I remember when when I first started uh, primary school, some of it wasn't necessarily the, the obvious things around the skin colour. It was other things that are quite prominent within, within black people. So people would make fun of the size of my lips, the size of my nose, which are obviously all features that I can't help. I remember one day when I was stood at a bus stop and a van drove past and then they were making loads of monkey noises. Sometimes it isn't always, the, the, you know, the N-word and some of the obvious racial slurs. Sometimes there's it's more kind of the microaggressions as well. You know, for example, I could come across a random person maybe and one of the first things they say to me is that, oh, I like rice and peas or, or I've been to Jamaica or something like that. And it's that kind of thing which, you know, makes quite a lot of us feel uncomfortable. Some of the racism Ramel experienced growing up left him feeling very angry and he admits he did on occasion lash out. It does get to you, but there are other ways of kind of resolving it without resulting in violence and especially doing a job like I do now, I can really make a difference. The 34-year-old told us about one of his first interactions with police officers. I was a teenager on a council estate it was late at night, I was on a bike, going up a road, and I saw someone a bit further behind me. They weren't in uniform, but they were also on a bike. Didn't really think anything of it. And then all of a sudden, they kind of grabbed me and then pulled me off the bike. And they was like, what are you doing? And I was just like, I'm going to my friend's house. I think at this time, this is when phones were absolutely huge because they were, you know, the, the bricks. And obviously my pockets looked quite bulging. So, yeah, then they started saying, what have you got in your pockets? Uh, you know, just talk, talk to me with complete disrespect. The fact that they laid hands on me as well for no reason, apart from to kind of stop me from, because I was obviously pedalling on my bike. So they, you know, just literally grabbed my arm and stopped me from moving. And then, yeah, it didn't really give me any reason for anything. And then they just, they just went off. Nothing, no apology or anything. And for me, I did shout, you racist. And yeah, I just thought it was police. And that's what a lot of, unfortunately, black community and other ethnic minority groups feel that it's just the police. So sometimes we don't actually react very angrily when these things happen because we've kind of grew up generationally used to being treated unfairly by the police. Even when I passed, passed my test and, and got a car, same thing. If I was in the car with three or four black males, straight away it's a gang and being pulled over for no reason was common again. Some of those experiences are really negative um, and again, until 
I kind of grew up and got a bit more understanding around things and certainly seeing what goes on within the police now. It's only a really, really small minority of people who do this and we know that racial profiling, unconscious bias, prejudice, a lot of these things do exist still, but I feel that training is a lot better so to you know have that cultural awareness and things because even I know there's been examples where for example sometimes black people speak quite a lot with their hands uh, I'm doing it now but you can't really see my hands on, on this recording and that can be seen as aggressive and sometimes the way we speak certain cultures this they kind of speak quite loudly and and that again it can sometimes be seen as aggression when it's not that's just how we speak things have definitely improved We've done a lot of work recently around Stephen Lawrence Day uh, and, and obviously that terrible tragedy as well. And we've definitely moved forward, uh, but, you know, with the anniversary of George Floyd. So there is still a, a long, long way to go. Ramel joined the police in his mid-twenties after having his first child. For me, having a child completely changed the way I thought about life. But now there is someone here in this world that's completely dependent on me. And I don't want them going off down the wrong path. I don't want them experiencing racism. I don't want them, you know, unfortunately get involved in youth violence and knife crime, which which is a huge problem nationally and, and you know, certainly in, in some of the black communities as well. It, it's, you know, really bad. Ramel wanted to make a difference, to bring about positive change. He first worked in the control room before becoming a youth outreach worker, engaging with 10 to 18-year-olds. You know, fast forward now, we're, we're over two years in and it's a, it's a permanent position and, and we're having massive success in this area as, as well as across the force. He thinks the killing of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests that followed reignited a conversation which forced society to take a look at itself, including within police forces. You could understand people out themselves who've had those really negative experiences and then you see the shocking death of this man. You could understand why people still feel the way they do about the police. We know there's still a lot to do. There's a lot that needs addressing. We need to make sure we hold people to account with complaints. There needs to be better training, recruitment, and building those relationships with the communities. So 100%, I understand that viewpoint around the institutionalised racism. And that, that is something that, again, we want to completely remove any prejudice um, we do a programme called the Mini Police, which is something that we do in primary schools. So right at the grassroots level, we're engaging with young people. So they're already growing up knowing the local police officer and having a, a relationship with them and having positive interactions. And again, when we're talking about some of the issues around stop search and how we can address that. So working very closely with the community, I think, is showing our commitment to really making a change. This summer, we're doing a programme called Widening Access. So that is actually a targeted programme that we're running where we're bringing in people from ethnically diverse backgrounds into the organisation where they can find out a lot more about what we do. We can tell them about all the fantastic careers. We can educate them on the recruitment process so they have a really good chance of passing the assessments, what it takes to join the police as officer or staff. Uh, if we look at the Operation Uplift, which is due to the officers that Boris had pledged a few years ago and the way that because of that extra funding, because of that extra support, our figures in terms of our representation jumped massively. I, I don't have the exact figure, but I'm sure it was 7 to 8%, which 
in terms of the makeup of Nottinghamshire makes us representative now. Ramel thinks improving representation in the police is a key part to building trust and confidence. Being of certain ethnicities, being of certain genders really, really does help because it's about that understanding and having that awareness as well. And sometimes that isn't things you can be taught. It really does help having a real mixture, a real inclusive workforce because we're able to really look at all the challenges that exist using the experience that we have internally to really make a difference when we go out and do things externally. So it is really, really important to make sure that we have people within the organisation from all walks of life because we, we are the community. That's, that's always how I've seen the police. Stuart and I spoke a bit more about the relationship with his son. I want to ask you about the next generation. Your son, Theo, he's 10. So, that, I mean, the book must have been written um, partially with him in mind. And, you know, yeah, what, 100%. What, what do you say to him about the current situation? What do you say to him about the uncle that he was never able to meet? And what do you say to him about the future? He knows about Stephen. He knows Stephen's not here no more. We haven't gone any further with the details of what, why we lost or how we lost Stephen. And I, I, things I say to Theo is, we say to him about two things, which is his attitude and his effort. The two things you can control in life is your attitude and your effort. And as long as you have a good attitude and you apply good effort, then nine times out of ten, life will be okay. And, and that's what I say to people. I, I, I don't want to have the talk with him about, you know, Theo, you're black, I'm afraid, so therefore, you know, your life's going to be a bit more difficult. I don't want to have that talk because that's going to give him a complex about life and about himself. So until someone highlights it to him outside of his family unit, outside of that love that he has, until that point, I'm not gonna have that talk with him. When it does happen, I'll definitely have the talk with him and I'll explain to him that again, in my opinion, his mum's opinion, he's a beautiful little boy and as long as he's doing good and he's a nice, caring, kind person, then no one shouldn't want to be nice towards him. And if someone does wanna be, doesn't wanna, then remove yourself, go somewhere else, because, you know, don't associate yourself with them. people. There's loads of people in the world that will like you, that will want to be with you, and will treat you as a decent, and a common respect that we have for each other. And anyone else that's not like that, then yeah, let's just swerve them and let's not be around them. If young people set their environment and grow into adults and have the positive mindset, accepting of everyone, then I'm hopeful that when my son becomes an adult, that the world will be a different place. My thanks to Stuart Lawrence, Ramel Davis and to you, of course, for listening to this episode of the Sky News Daily Podcast hosted by me, Dermot Murnahan and produced by Annie Joyce along with Tatiana Alderson and Nelly Stefanova. The special documentary Stuart has made with us is called Stephen and George, The Killings That Inspired a Movement and that's available to watch via the Sky News mobile app and on our YouTube channel. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can follow us in the usual places and leave a review while you're there. The climate crisis can be an overwhelming and emotional conversation. We will not let you get away with this. But it isn't just about cutting carbon emissions or reporting on disasters. On Sky News Climatecast, we'll examine the big issues in depth with scientists, policymakers, and activists. 
Every week, we'll highlight how small changes can make a big difference as we look for solutions to climate change problems. Sky News Climatecast. Listen, follow, subscribe. You can listen to us on the go. Tonight, several stories developing the major new steps in the reopening of America. New York City, the nation's largest school district, eliminating remote learning for the fall. New signs of normalcy, packed sporting events, graduations, parades and proms as new COVID cases fall to the lowest level in nearly a year. Also new questions about COVID's origin. The U.S. intelligence report on Wuhan lab staffers who fell ill before the first confirmed outbreak. The growing international outrage, the dictator accused of hijacking a commercial plane to arrest one of his top critics. What the U.S. now demands. An urgent manhunt after a six-year-old was killed in a road rage shooting. The new reward tonight. Yearbook backlash what female students are accusing a Florida school of doing to their photos. The extreme weather striking an ultra marathon. 21 people killed. The search for survivors. Our NBC News investigation nearly one year after the death of George Floyd. The controversial police restraints being used across the country with sometimes deadly results. Allergy sufferers, why this season is so bad and what to do about it. This is NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. Good evening, everyone. For weeks, we've been holding our breaths, hoping it wasn't fool's gold. But tonight, the recovery seems genuine. Optimism spreading across the country as the pandemic recedes and the country reopens. While the pace of vaccinations has slowed, nearly half the population has now received at least one dose and new cases are dropping fast. Make no mistake, we are not rid of COVID, not by a long shot, but with the unofficial start to the summer season just a week away, Many Americans are determined to make up for lost ground. We can also report tonight the CDC is investigating a small number of teenagers and young adults who have developed a rare inflammation of the heart after receiving their second dose. Is there a connection? Here's NBC's Tom Costello. A week till Memorial Day, but America is already on the pandemic rebound. Festivals, parades, sporting events, graduations, and proms. We're due for it. Last year, we lost the summer because of COVID, so this year, it's going to be a big summer. Tonight, the closely watched CDC numbers all point in the right direction. New COVID cases at their lowest level since last June. Hospitalizations and deaths down dramatically. With nearly 50% of Americans having received at least one vaccine dose, nearly 40% fully vaccinated. I just feel more like myself, like back to normal, kind of. It's not just about you. It's about your obligation. Today, President Biden and Dr. Fauci appeared with several YouTube stars encouraging young people to get vaccinated. The science behind both the safety and the efficacy of the vaccine is truly extraordinary. Now New Jersey says it's keeping its mask mandate in place for all schools and summer camps, while both L.A. and New York City schools say all kids will be back in the classroom this fall. 
I think a lot of school districts are probably going to start the school year in masks, and, and that's going to be largely out of a sense of uncertainty. Meanwhile, the CDC is investigating a few dozen cases of young teens who developed myocarditis, an inflammation of the heart muscle after receiving their second dose. Though the symptoms were mild and it's not clear the vaccine caused the condition. This is unfortunately a condition that you can see in children and, and in adults. And so far they're saying no, there, there aren't more cases than we would expect. And Tom, we understand there's a real split going on between states that have vaccinated the most people and states that haven't. Yeah, nine states have vaccinated at least 70% of their adults, mostly in the Northeast. States with the lowest vaccination rates are by and large in the Southeast, Luster. All right, Tom Costello tonight, thank you. New developments on the possible origins of COVID. U.S. intelligence saying researchers at a lab in Wuhan, China, got sick enough to need hospital care just before the outbreak, sparking fresh debate on whether the pandemic can be traced to that lab. With more on that, here's Keir Simmons. Tonight, NBC News confirms the U.S. intelligence report says three researchers at a Wuhan lab fell ill and even went to the hospital right before the coronavirus pandemic began. There's been growing speculation the virus escaped from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but an earlier joint study by the WHO in China controversially dismissed claims the virus may have leaked from that lab. But back in March, a member of that team told us some lab researchers were ill. Did some researchers get sick with flu-like symptoms in the fall of 2019? There were occasional illness because that's normal. There was nothing that stood out. Do you remember, remember how many researchers? Maybe one or two. It's, it's certainly not a big, uh, big thing. In February, a Western intelligence official told NBC News the U.S. has substantial intelligence that has not been made public about the actions the Chinese government took related to the Wuhan lab. And recently, Dr. Fauci became the latest high-profile scientist to question China's theory that the virus came from an animal. I'm not convinced uh, about that. I think that we should continue to investigate what went on in China. But some WHO scientists insist China can be trusted. Can you trust the Chinese data? It's the science that's taken lead here, and the data don't lie. But just this month, another group of international scientists wrote this letter saying we need a transparent, objective, data-driven investigation into how COVID began. Lester? All right, Keir Simmons, thank you. We want to turn out of that stunning act in the skies over Europe. Authorities in Belarus forcing down a passenger plane to arrest a well-known activist. Secretary of State Blinken condemning that move. With more, here's Sarah Harmon. Tonight, it's being called a state-sponsored hijacking. This commercial Ryanair flight from Greece to Lithuania forced to land while flying over Belarus. Belarusian authorities at first claimed there was a bomb threat. Sniffer dogs on the tarmac. We just uh, change uh, the direction of flight and we go down and then to the left. But there wasn't a bomb. Instead, it appears to be a brazen operation by the president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko. Branded Europe's last dictator by protesters, a staunch ally of President Putin. His target, one of his sharpest critics, 26-year-old journalist Roman Protasevich, who was on board. During the emergency landing, eyewitnesses say he panicked. Trying to split the things, like computer, give it to a girlfriend. 
The plane eventually continued to Lithuania without the journalist or his girlfriend on board. Now opposition leaders are fearful. I'm sure that he's being tortured because he knows a lot of information. Tonight, the U.S. is calling for an international investigation, and the EU is telling European airlines to stop flying over Belarus. Lester. Okay, Sarah, thank you. In just 60 seconds, outrage after a high school alters the photos of 80 girls in the yearbook. What the school is saying about that. Breaking news near Las Vegas tonight. Our affiliate KSNV reports of an aircraft associated with the U.S. military has crashed near Nellis Air Force Base. The type of aircraft and the status of the pilot or crew have not yet been released. Heartbreak here in Southern California, a manhunt for the shooter who killed a six-year-old boy during a road rage incident near Anaheim. The boy's family pleading for the public's health. Here's NBC's Miguel Almaguer. On this busy Southern California freeway, the call for help is now followed by a mother's desperate plea to catch a killer. I want them to pay for what they've done. Joanna Clunin says her six-year-old Aiden was strapped to his booster seat in the back seat on their way to pre-kindergarten when a car in orange cut her off. I heard a, uh, a loud noise and I heard my son say, ow. And he had been shot. In a fit of road rage, a shot pierced the vehicle's trunk, striking Aiden. I tried to save him, but he was losing a lot of blood. The six-year-old, who had just celebrated his birthday, did not survive. Investigators shutting down and scouring the freeway for clues, tight-lipped on what leads, if any, they have in their manhunt for a female driver and male passenger in a white Volkswagen that sped away. In recent years, AAA says there's been roughly 30 murders a year from road rage. Investigators are asking anyone with dash cam video to step forward. Aiden's family is now offering a $50,000 reward for information that leads to an arrest, a family already paying an unimaginable toll. We all loved him so much. Miguel Almaguer, NBC News, Orange, California. A digital cover-up causing outrage tonight among students at a Florida high school and their parents. Blaine Alexander tells us more about that. When Riley O'Keefe and Zoe Iannone got their Bartram Trail High School yearbooks, they flipped straight to their pictures and were shocked by what they saw. It's like the first thing you notice, so I felt very uncomfortable. These are the original photos, and here's what appeared in the yearbook. The images edited to cover up more of their chest. And they weren't the only ones. At least 80 female students at the high school in St. Johns County, Florida, found their outfits altered, deemed dress code violations after the pictures were taken. Now their body parts are of additional focus and attention that never would have been there in the first place if the school hadn't called attention to it. Immediately, I, my blood started to boil. These families say the dress code needs a change, calling it a double standard. When the school goes and edits out my cleavage in a photo, but decides that a swim team photo is okay in Speedos, it just sends the message that my body is inappropriate. The superintendent told us tonight there was not a sufficient review before the edits, adding there has never been an intent to embarrass or shame any student for the clothes that they wear. And the parents told us when they asked about the quality of the editing, they were told it was a product of being short-staffed. Lester? 
All right, Blaine, thank you. Tomorrow marks one year since George Floyd's death, which brought renewed scrutiny of police restraint practices. An NBC News investigation with the Marshall Project found their use has sometimes been deadly. Here's Gabe Gutierrez, and I have to warn you, the videos are disturbing. This body camera video shows the tense moments that still haunt Vanessa Peoples. How often do you think about what happened? Every day. In 2017, police. police in Aurora, Colorado, came to her home with a social worker for a child welfare check. No, 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 the encounter escalated quickly. I don't have to stay back. Stay back. Stay back. The next thing I knew, they threw me down on the ground and they had my arm behind my back. And I kept telling him, I said, there's something wrong. My arm doesn't feel right, it hurts. And he had his knee in my back. And it was like, at that moment, I felt like I was gonna lose my life. The device officers use to restrain her is known as a hobble and involves tying a person's hands and feet behind their back while on their stomach. An analysis of data NBC News obtained found she's one of roughly 350 people who've been hobbled by the Aurora Police Department in the last five years. Mom! Police say it is used on the most aggressive people. I wasn't treated like a human being. When fastening the feet and hands together, the method is called a hog tie. Around the country since 2010, NBC News has identified at least 23 people who have died following a hog tie or hobble. Imagine your closest sibling looking at them die. Kimberly Smith says her brother Marcus was in crisis and seeking help from the police. Tell me where you want to go first. This video from 2018 shows the last moments of his life. We'll help you, but you got to chill out. He's unarmed as he approaches police outside a music festival in Greensboro, North Carolina. Police cuff and hogtie him so tightly, his knees are off the ground. Hey. He stops breathing and later dies. The next morning, in a press release, police said Smith had collapsed in custody and that officers rendered aid. The autopsy declared the death a homicide. No police were charged. In a response to a suit by Smith's family, the city says the restraint was appropriate in light of the safety risk he posed to himself and others. I had no idea what a hog tie was. I had no clue. That's how you treat an animal. As for Vanessa Peoples, who was restrained and survived, the city settled her case for $100,000. I know that she was injured, which is what we want to completely avoid in cases when we when we use the hobble or any restraint system. Chief Vanessa Wilson makes a clear distinction between a hobble shown here and a hog tie. But Aurora police did not have a policy banning the hog tie until 2019. The hog tie is absolutely not safe. Is the hobble method safe? It is safe, but I want to do better. Her department is now trying out a different kind of restraint using what's known as a wrap device demonstrated here. Most importantly, the person is upright. It's a better way of dealing with individuals that are in crisis and that are agitated. But for Vanessa Peoples, the updated training comes too late. I have to walk around every day knowing that it happened and there's really nothing that I could do but just live with it. Gabe Gutierrez, NBC News, Aurora, Colorado. There are calls for greater safety precautions in China tonight after 21 people died in an ultra-marathon race. Many were dressed in T-shirts and shorts when they were hit by brutal winds, freezing rain and hail during the 62-mile race. Up next for us here tonight, why seasonal allergies are back with a vengeance. 
It's not your imagination. Allergy season really is getting worse. Kristen Dahlgren with why and what you can do about it. While many are welcoming a return to the outdoors, for others, it also marks the return of seasonal allergies. My eyes have been really watery, stuffy, runny nose, headaches, pressure here and here. It's been feeling different this year for some reason. Allergists are noticing it too, appointments filling up fast. I think my first available is September or October. Dr. Rita Katru blames a combination of factors. Now that people are opening up and they're taking their mask off, we're definitely seeing an increase in, in pollen allergy. Researchers found pollen season became 20 days longer between 1990 and 2018, and pollen counts were up more than 20%. Climate change was the biggest driver of seasons getting longer and a substantial driver of seasons getting worse with more pollen in the air. Increasing temperatures mean plants starting their growing season earlier and making more pollen. <laughs> Doctors recommend keeping windows closed at night, rinsing your face and hair and changing clothes after being outside. And if your doctor recommends it, take medications before symptoms start. You can always hang on to your mask if pollen counts are high. A few steps to make sure you're not stuck inside all season. Kristen Dahlgren, NBC News. Now to our series, Kids Under Pressure and the Crisis Within the Pandemic Impacting So Many Young People. Stephanie Gosk on the rise in eating disorders. Isolated in a room because of COVID, with no school and unable to see friends, 16-year-old Chloe Melton's eating disorder went from bad to dangerous. I was in a controlled environment, which the eating disorder thrives in. I was um, able to make all of my meals. I would isolate in my room. I was eating dinner at two o'clock. Why were you eating dinner at two o'clock? Intermittent fasting. The internet told me that that was healthier. The weight dropped fast, slowing her heart to under 40 beats per minute. Was it easy in those moments not to feel bad about the behavior because you didn't have anyone looking at it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, there were things I definitely knew I wasn't supposed to be doing that I did because I was by myself. Three months into the pandemic, Chloe was diagnosed with anorexia and ended up in an Atlanta hospital. At that same time, patients just like Chloe were also flooding Boston Children's Hospital. Typically, we would see three to four patients with eating disorders on our inpatient service. Post-pandemic, we were routinely over 10 and getting as many as 15 or 16. That's three, four, five times the number of patients that you normally see. Absolutely, and I would say it's not just the volume, but the complexity and the severity. Dr. Tracy Richmond is the director of the Eating Disorders Program at Boston Children's. I'd say a picture is worth a thousand words here. It's also heartbreaking. Absolutely. I mean, these are kids who should not be in, in a medical hospital setting. They should be at home and in school and thriving. Dr. Richmond reached out to eight other hospitals in the country and found a similar surge in severe eating disorder cases, patient numbers doubling. We're seeing kids from all sort of racial and ethnic backgrounds, all sorts of socioeconomic backgrounds. We are coming out of this pandemic. People are taking off masks. Kids are back in school. Is this going to get better for you? You know, I really worry about this next wave, to be honest. I've had some patients who have told me they're really hesitant to go back. We're going to see some ramifications for a long time in our adolescents' mental health. Chloe says she struggles every day, but she hopes her recovery might help someone else. It's scary. It never gets less scary until you keep doing it. And it's so worth it. 
Stephanie, you have to wonder, does this spike tell a larger story about children's mental health right now? Yes, Lester. Experts say it really does. The doctor I spoke with at Boston Children's actually describes the mental health illnesses triggered by isolation and school closures as a second pandemic. Lester? All important information for parents. Stephanie, thank you. That's Nightly News. Thanks for watching. Please take care of yourself and each other. Good night, everyone. Hey, NBC News viewers. Thanks for checking out our YouTube channel. Subscribe by clicking on that button down here and click on any of the videos over here to watch the latest interviews, show highlights, and digital exclusives. Thanks for watching. Keep listening to our weekly episodes to find out more. We begin with the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's death. His murder by a Minneapolis police officer sparked a global movement for racial justice. Alex Perez joins us from George Floyd Square in Minneapolis, where Floyd was killed. Alex, good morning. What's it like there today, and what events are being planned? Hey, Diane, already a busy scene here at the memorial where George Floyd was killed. We're expecting there's going to be a sort of block party of sorts here, a number of people coming down. There'll be some performances all aimed at celebrating George Floyd's life here. And I want you to take a look behind me here. You can see this is now a permanent memorial for George Floyd. There are, uh, in some places, uh, pictures of other victims of police brutality and also just a lot of messages, people who feel moved to come here and leave their thoughts, express their condolences for George Floyd. That event happens here this afternoon. There'll be another event uh, at a park in downtown Minneapolis. Uh, the Floyd family calling that a celebration of life and black culture. Uh, they've been having a number of events the last couple of days, all aimed at remembering George Floyd and sort of helping to move the racial justice movement forward, Diane. And Alex, the Floyd family has hosted a number of events over the last few days to try to move the conversation forward. What kind of an impact are they hoping to have? Well, Diane, you know, I've talked to the Floyd family members, uh, several of them, and, and they say they want this to be not only about remembering George Floyd, but also creating some sort of lasting impact about changing laws, about changing the ways police officers are trained. Uh, the one thing they say, they don't want to George Floyd's death to be in vain. And so that's what they say they've been working on uh, the last year. That's why they said they created the Floyd Foundation. And they say the work is really just beginning. They're one year into what could be several years of work to really have and see some of that lasting change, Diane. And Alex, Derek Chauvin was convicted of Floyd's murder. He's set to be sentenced next month. The other officers involved were originally supposed to stand trial in August, but now that's been moved to next year. So what's the latest on all of that and the civil rights case being looked at by the Justice Department? Yeah, so still a lot of criminal proceedings ongoing as we mark uh, George Floyd's life here today. You know, that uh, uh, sentencing for Derek Chauvin is set to happen on June 25th here in Minneapolis. And the trial for the three other former officers who are charged is now set to begin in March of next year. But in between all of that is now uh, this federal case, uh, the Department of Justice uh, issuing, charging all four officers with violating George Floyd's civil rights. 
When exactly that trial is going to take place is unclear right now, but still a lot of legal sort of maneuverings and proceedings happening as people gather to remember George Floyd, Diane. Yeah, and Alex, you've been covering this story in depth for all of the past year. What kind of an impact would you say Floyd's death has had on Minneapolis as a city, but also on the country as a whole? Well, Diane, I can tell you that Minneapolis is a different place than it was one year ago, and I think many parts of the country are a different place than they were a year ago. You know, I was looking, staring at that area behind me here. That's where he took his last breaths. And I remember being there with uh, his brother, Terrence, last year after all of this happened, and he was in tears. And the one thing he told me that he wanted to make sure was that his brother would not become another statistic, that he would not uh, just be another person killed in police brutality. He wanted to see real change. And I think he's seen some of that. He said even that day, he, he looked out at the crowd and he, I remember him pointing out how he saw black people and white people and other minorities all coming together for one cause. And in that moment, he said he hoped that that would continue forward because he felt that would be the only way that we can create some sort of lasting change in America. And I think they've seen some of that. The family has seen some of that the last year, but they make it clear that they want this journey of change to continue. This is the biggest civil rights movement we've really seen in this country in decades. And they're quick to point out that the fight for equality, racial equality, is not over yet. Diane. All right, Alex Perez live in Minneapolis for us. Thanks, Alex. Hi, everyone. George Stephanopoulos here. Thanks for checking out the ABC News YouTube channel. If you'd like to get more videos, show highlights, and watch live event coverage, click on the right over here to subscribe to our channel. And don't forget to download the ABC News app for breaking news alerts. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.